You better be listening to Sleezoids or I must break you. And what I'm thinking is I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance. You know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know. That's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Hupkin. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We are going classic Cohen mode and the Canadian dad version of it, I guess. I don't know. Josh will mm. enlighten you guys later. Uh, <laughs> join the please. <laughs> we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for coming up on our fifth year of bonus episodes. There's something like Ooh. 100 of them waiting for you, as well as our bonus transmission series, where we talk about new release genre movies. Uh, so if <laughs> you haven't we'll do done that yet... Again. Yes. I mean, we <laughs> after the best genre films of uh, 2021 being almost four hours long, I think we needed a break from the bonus transmissions, but they <laughs> are coming back soon. I, I do want to check out that new Scream, and there's some <laughs> other stuff coming out I'm interested in. So, yeah. uh, again, patreon.com slash podcast if that interests you at all. And speaking of which, we did have quite a few people make the jump this week. Nice. So we'll give them their shout outs here. We had Brad Avery. We had Zoid Wheeler. Uh, we had Jordan Winnie, we had Kian O'Brien, uh, sign up at the $10 a month rate, joining us for the, uh, virtual screenings that we do at the end of each month for the $10 patrons. Um, we had, uh, David English sign up as well as Alina Gobel. So thanks so much to you folks for signing up and I hope you guys are enjoying all of those bonus episodes. We appreciate the support. That's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is uh, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts and I see the stats, I know that you are. I see you right now listening on Apple Podcasts. Scroll down to the very bottom. Give us a good old rating and review down there. It helps us climb the ranks over at iTunes and find new listeners. And the very last plug is uh, Merch. If you guys like the poster art that local horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that basically put on anything you want. A shirt, a hoodie, a pillow, a notebook, anything you could think of. You can probably get the Sleezoids logo on it, or you can just yes. get a straight up poster like Jamie and I both have hanging up in our place. Looks good. Uh, the, the link to that is in the description and also at sleezoidspodcast.com. That is the intro. Welcome back, folks, to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. 
Welcome. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks uh, would have heard from us on the main feed, and we would have been doing another gargantuan episode following up our <laughs> huge best movies of 2021 with a, an episode we knew was going to be big because it was yeah. a big old triple feature episode, and every single movie we covered, unlike some of the other ones we like to do on the show, they were each like two hours long, you know, versus right. like the 90 minute bangers we uh, <laughs> we get to cover a lot of the time on the show. Love those. Uh, and that was because there was a new Scream film out, so we decided it would be a great time to go back and talk about Wes Craven's uh, metafictional slasher franchise, Scream. We talked about the original film from 1996, Scream 2 from 1997, and Scream 3 from the year 2000. We unfortunately did cut short of Scream 4 from 2011 yeah. just because it doesn't really meet the cutoff point of where we kind of it's usually, we haven't talked about a 2010s movie on this show other than in the bonus transmission series, so we kind of avoid it. But all four films are very good films, and Jamie and I yes. went guestless for it so we could have a, a really in-depth talk about those three films. So if you like Wes Craven, if you like slasher films, what are you doing? Check out the main feed two weeks ago. Yeah, uh, And then boy. last week, for the bonus listeners over on the Patreon, uh, because we have been talking about so many kind of really big sort of canon movies recently, we talked Die Hard, we talked Scream, yeah. we said we need to throw in a real grindhouse, gutter, trash, nonsense, double feature, and that was what we did where we finally talked about uh, the combination of one, a Baptist minister by the name of Estes Washington Perkle from Mississippi, <laughs> and Ron Ormond, a vaudeville magician turned exploitation filmmaker. The unholy combination of these two men resulting in some of the most disturbingly gruesome, explicit, and graphic Christian propaganda films that you've ever seen coming out in the 1970s we talked about. If footmen tire you, what will horses do? As well as The Burning Hell. The first film is all about the idea of a potential communist takeover of America that's going to happen <laughs> in exactly 1973, according yeah, to Estes Perkle. <laughs> yes, that, that movie includes uh, Castro-looking foot soldiers uh, shoving bamboo sticks into children's brains until they vomit. And then The Burning Hell from 1974 is their depiction of uh, a hell as not as the symbolic idea of punishment, but this very literal physical place that exists and you are going to go to uh, if you don't believe. Both films uh, were designed to show to seven-year-olds to scare them into running to Jesus and to becoming uh, uh, insane right-wing freaks. So if that <laughs> interests you at all, we, Jamie and I had a lot of fun talking about oh, yeah. 70s in Christian propaganda uh, that's incredibly disturbing and violent and was shown <laughs> literally to children in the 1970s. It's insane. Yeah, it went on tour, um, basically. <laughs> yes, <Wow. laughs> 16 millimeter reels from church to church. Um, so uh, patreon.com slash Thesoids podcast. Once again, if that episode interests you at all, that was last week's bonus episode. Uh, but finally, moving on to this week, we have a really big episode with a guest that we've been meaning to have on for a while. Many of you will know them uh, by their Twitter handle, Srirachachow. Uh, but the special guest joining us this week and bringing us a insane double feature that I'm really excited to talk about oh, is yeah. Michael. Michael, how are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Uh, thank you so much for having me on here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for no coming problem. on. No problem. 
Thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, now, Michael, as it goes on this show, we have uh, the guests bring the double features with them. So what two films have you brought with you this week and why did you pair them together? Uh, so I brought uh, The King of Comedy and Perfect Blue. Um, I think they're both just like really great movies about like identity and fame, uh, the relationship between like celebrities and like the audience they have. But uh, it feels like cliche to say now, but like I feel like they're both like really prescient about the way like we present ourselves like in the world and like how everyone's like now trying to find like some level of fame. I think they're just like really interesting movies. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that they paired really well together because I I had only seen King of Comedy previously, but I've been meaning to yeah, me get too. to Perfect Blue for a while, so it was it was a good excuse to finally knock it off my watch list. But I was definitely when I finally watched Perfect Blue, I was like, this has a lot of the same uh, disturbing point of view of like mm-hmm. fantasy and reality being dangerously kind of blurred together, which I think is really cool. But both filmmakers definitely took a very different stylistic methods of kind of, you know, uh, broaching this subject of the idea of a media consumer becoming <laughs> more involved in the real lives of the things that they consume on their screens. Um, and yeah, uh, Cam Comedy, obviously, Martin Scorsese, uh, 1982, and Perfect Blue, um, 1997, correct, right? Uh, Satoshi Khan. Yeah. So either way, very, very interesting to see sort of like uh, two different filmmakers take two different styles to similar subject matter. Um, but yeah, that being said, I think we should jump right into it here. Uh, let's get into, chronologically, The King of Comedy. is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pipkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin, P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro. Jerry Lewis. In a Martin Scorsese picture. The king of comedy. All right, we are talking the king of comedy, the 1982 American satirical black comedy thriller drama film all over the place, uh, (laughs) directed by one Martin Scorsese and obviously starring Robert De Niro in what was their fifth collaboration together at the point of making this film and also co-starring the legendary Jerry Lewis and Sandra Bernhardt. this film, I'm assuming most people are going to be familiar because we are talking about a pretty big filmmaker this week. We're talking about Martin Scorsese. I'm sure a lot of people have seen this film, uh, especially now because it has been sort of uh, pretty much reclaimed as one of his greatest films, despite the fact that it kind of got a bit of a tepid response on release um, and definitely bombed financially. And I think Scorsese mm, and De Niro right. were kind of both hurt by that um, around the time that the film came out, which is you know kind of unfortunate. But if there's anyone out there who hasn't who listens to this podcast and hasn't seen The King of Comedy, uh, Robert De Niro is playing a character by the name of Rupert Pupkin, and he is a uh, aspiring stand-up comedian slash uh, late-night television host um, who is uh, on his grind set. Oh, on, yeah. on, on, <laughs> uh, he, he's got that money mindset and he is attempting to achieve success in show business um, by instead of making his way up from the bottom, playing clubs, getting a tape together, uh, he has decided to take the approach of just stalking his idol. Uh, one Jerry Langford, played by uh, the legendary comedian and filmmaker Jerry 
Lewis. And this obviously gets into, uh, you know, this is a movie that deals a lot in sort of what's kind of happening in the details of it. I actually read that uh, Scorsese originally kind of turned it down because the way that he saw it is that the film kind of had like one gag uh, Mm. originally when he looked at it. And he was like, yeah, so a, a fan just kidnaps his his idol like that when you when people were reading the screenplay that's kind of how they were looking at it but i think de niro being de niro he saw it as a showcase for the performance and he saw that the Mm. performance would take control of the film the detail of the performance would uh engage people further than what you could just see on the page and de niro himself actually bought the screenplay um to this film directly from the guy who wrote it, the film critic Paul D. Zimmerman, who was obviously uh, inspired at the time. I think he wrote it in like the 70s. He wrote it like almost a full decade before this came out. And he was inspired actually by Johnny Carson and uh, the autograph hunters who were pursuing him. And he, so he, you know, he wrote the story that tackled late night TV and stand up comedy, but also, you know, celebrity culture and the media industry at large in, in America. And this idea of kind of like, isolated viewers who have dreams of, you know, being part of the things that they consume um, and seeing it, you know, I think at, at one point, as Jerry Lewis says, you know, like sometimes you people watch what we do and they see how relaxed and funny we are and they think that, you know, we're not putting work in, you know, that this is right. just uh, something that anyone could just get up and do. Mm. Um, but yeah, this film came out, I, this was came out right after Raging Bull, right? Mm. I think they had, I think, I think, uh, yeah. De Niro and him had just finished that together. Obviously, one of their most acclaimed films got tons of Oscars. Uh, yeah, I was reading that. Like, apparently, like uh, Scorsese wasn't interested before, but like after Raging Bull, he started becoming like kind of a name, and like people started recognizing him. And that's when he started like really connecting with that script. Yeah, yeah. That it was, it was, it was a question of I, he didn't really get it before in the seventies because when De Niro first brought it to him, it was like nineteen seventy four. He had just done, mm-hmm. I think, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, mm-hmm. and that was around the time that, that he denied it and said, yeah, I don't really think that that's the next one for me. And I think De Niro at one point, he had to take it to Michael Cimino who did mm. the deer hunter with De Niro, but he was too busy on the obviously absurdly over budget, uh, heaven's gate shoot that he was doing at the time. <laughs> um, and then I think De Niro also took it to Bob Fosse at one point, which is an interesting, oh, interesting. name. And I do wonder what the movie would have looked like. Cause obviously he had just finished cool. all that jazz around yeah. the time that he had finished it, which obviously has some really dark industry elements and, and critique to it. Um, and he ended up doing star 80 instead, I think. Right. Yes, he ended up doing Star 80 instead. Yeah. Uh, but it eventually landed back with Scorsese, who had his interest rekindled, as as Michael mentioned, obviously due to some of the alienation he felt himself from his own growing celebrity status as his, you know, um, as, as he was being more sort of recognized as a filmmaker and getting more acclaim. Um, and also, I think he did eventually at one point start finally connecting a little bit with De Niro, you know, describing it as, you know, he's like, it's a really mean, cynical movie, but like ultimately, Ultimately, this is like about a struggling artist in a way. Um, And so when De Niro kind of clarified that for him, they started putting some things in there where they even have a little bit of sympathy for for Pupkin. There's actually a part in the film where he's on the payphone, like hounding Jerry's office. (laughs) And um, it's actually the same payphones that him and De Niro used to call producers from. Oh, wow. Um, Oh, that's very cool. I didn't know that. and and also De Niro partially was able to convince him because he said, look, this could be a New York movie, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's all Scorsese ultimately needs to hear. He's like, okay, it can be a new more New York movie. Um, Is it all, like, at all connected to, like, because I know uh, for, like, Taxi Driver, like, Jodie Foster had, um, 
John Hinckley, right? Is that at all connected at all to that? I mean, I'd, I'd have to imagine that that definitely had them, you know, uh, thinking about the material because it's definitely mm. something I thought about watching it. Like, uh, Jamie, I'm sure you've heard of that. The the guy who tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan because he oh, right. watched Taxi Driver and wanted to impress Jodie Foster. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that, uh, that had already happened at, at this point, I believe, um, they had also at, at not long after this, they would have also had the guy who got like John Lennon's autograph and also killed him. Oh yeah. Um, right. so th- there was definitely this, you know, the, the, the since he, since Zinnemann wrote it in the seventies into the early eighties, this had just become more of a subject, you know, there was definitely, um, a climate of people, you know, finally you know, starting to see the distance closing between the sort of, you know, the, the, the audience and the things that they are actually consuming. And I think Zinnemann said that part of the reason he felt it failed was that because <laughs> a, the, the, the tone that they're walking kind of confused the studio that they were like, there mm. is a real sense of danger from the mm. fact that people know people, you know, they've heard of people like this before and they know that they've actually tried to assassinate people, even if it's not something that Pupkin actually does in the film. Everyone's sitting there waiting for him to go Travis Bickle mode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you, and um, you're not like, there, there's so many points where, you know, his, his delusions are brought up that at a certain point, you're not quite sure if he is going to be willing to kill. And so there is kind of that suspense, uh, throughout the, the climax. Like once eventually he gets what he wants and we'll get in, into it more deep with more detail. Uh, I definitely, you know, trust him a little more, but there is a moment at least where I feel like he might do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's, a, there's definitely uh, sort of this idea of, you know, you, you, we are kind of strapped in to the sort of the, you know, the pathological <laughs> single minded pursuit that he's on. Yes. Um, and you Tunnel do, vision. you do, have a sense of ambiguity about like what the limitations of that are. Um, yeah. you know, there, there is something scary about it, even if, you know, it doesn't reach the sort of operatic extremes that, um, yeah. you know, and violent extremes that taxi driver does. And that was actually part of something that people, uh, what kind of, I think resulted in the, the tepid reaction. I was reading some of the early <clears throat> reviews, like Pauline Kale straight up had a negative review. Roger Ebert had wow. one of the few positive reviews and <clears throat> even it was kind of like, I found the movie like frustrating and kind of anticlimactic and Hmm. you know, there was, there was some, I I can't remember exactly the word that he used. I think he just said that, uh, you know, that, that you were watching lonely people make decisions knowing that they were going to result in bad things. And then the release never actually comes. And I think the wording that he used was that the movie feels like one long postponement of pain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so the overall feeling was that people kind of left the movie and just kind of had this general creepy, unpleasant kind of irritated vibe and that the movie was funny, but like never really delivered on the actual thriller elements. And the funniest thing kind of about this assessment is that I basically agree with them, but I find that it's what makes the movie interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like one of the Um, ways I love the way he rides that kind of ironic line is, is the way he uses music. A lot of the music is very, um, poppy and very happy. 
Uh, and uh, like one instance is right in the introduction when uh, Jerry Lewis, you know, he has a show. He does his, his whole monologue and all of that. He's established as like the man. He's got the band, the guest, the curtains. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and and then he goes outside and, you know, he's just hounded by by people. Um, and, he, you know, it just shows the chaos and eventual it, somewhat violence as well that comes with it. And then what he does, what says he does is just freezes uh, uh, Rupert's happy face while he's looking at, I believe it's, uh, is it, it was her name Marsha? Martha? Yeah, uh, Marsha. Marsha, I think, yeah. Marsha, Marsha yeah. Uh, who's 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 in there trying to get Jerry's uh, attention, and he just freeze frames it so that the opening credits can come on, and it's this very happy song that's that's kind of uh, you know just just very happy go lucky, and then he freezes. Yeah, it's, it's, that. it's it's a very famous actually Ray Charles romantic ballad come called right. uh, Come Rain or Come Shine, <laughs> and yes, it is very you know sort of ironically juxtaposed with this terrifying freeze frame of this woman's hands and and the flash of the camera and De Niro's face kind of like just out of focus. <laughs> yeah, and I love the way that he he freeze frames it, has the entire opening credits go on just this one shot, and then he goes right back into the chaos. He takes away the music and then you're just right back with the cameras and the screaming and, and Jerry trying to get through to his car and and it, yeah. it, it's just a it's a great way to introduce I think the the odd tone that he is going to bring you throughout the entirety of the movie. Definitely, definitely. Well, and and also, you know, again, like Scorsese's doing something really interesting with some of the sort of stylistic expressions here. And De Niro is on some, I don't know what he's on. He's, he's on going something. For it. um, it's awesome. Yeah, he I mean, this he went full method on this one. He was hunting down his own stalkers and having conversations and going to <laughs> oh, dinners with really? them. Oh, was he really? I didn't know. Yes. That. I trying love that. yeah. Yeah. Oh well, cuz and part and par- partially that was also how he convinced Scorsese was he was like this is these are real people like I get these people <laughs> calling me um, so the, the whole bit about the person getting Jerry's phone number and actually calling him up at his house like that actually happened to him so there's also a, a really great moment where Jerry's just walking down the street and he gets it he signs an autograph for a woman but he doesn't have the time to talk to her son who I think is in the hospital she says and so he just starts yeah. walking down the street and she says like I hope you get cancer or something like that <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and he says that that actually happened to him while he was walking down the street and had to had to kind of brush somebody off. Um, and he even directed her in that scene how to get the timing right and how she said it and all of that. So yeah, there's there's some wild examples in this movie. Yeah, I, I I love that sequence in particular because of just the way that it starts off very casual, where he's just he's walking around New York City, the greatest city, and everyone's <laughs> like Jerry, Jerry, you're the best. Yeah, you go, Jerry, and he's having he's kind of like smiling and he's waving at them and he, you know he's like this is like the amount the right amount of fan distance I need to be at and yeah. then everyone's like actually running into him and talking to him and then trying to get his autograph and then handing him a payphone to talk to her dying son he's like okay this is like this is getting a little personal um, and then at, at a certain point uh, it's one of the few like handheld moments in the film he literally just starts like sweating and sprinting towards his office like running away from people yeah um, yeah so that, um, that that stuff's really fantastic. All the stuff that's getting in, like both De Niro and Jerry had themselves, you know, gone through some of these experiences. So that stuff kind of feels like very authentic. And De Niro also, you know, uh, he he studied a lot of stand-up comedians, both on live and, and, and TV. And his performance is one of just nonstop, desperate 
showmanship. He is like yeah. this walking, ham-fisted cliche of a comedian slash talk show host just waiting time. for the camera and crew and audience to follow along with him. But he does it all the time. Yeah. In normal in, interactions, in like like yeah, just and, and people that, down the street and whoever he, uh, ex- interacts with business-wise and stuff like that. Exactly. I think there's something so difficult to watch about his performance because, you know, everything else around him is calibrated to be, you know, fairly grounded or at least grounded enough that it really accentuates how performative and animated his performance is. Mm -hmm. You know, you can tell that he's having conversations that he's already rehearsed like this hammy late night TV show host. And you just know that everyone around him can sense the fakeness of it and the desperation of it, uh, you know, despite how much he's rehearsed it to try to be natural. And how Um, much he still has. Go ahead. I was going to say like that, that desperation like feels like, uncomfortably real like when you're trying to be like ambitious yeah. in like any field <laughs> yes <laughs> definitely yeah like, yeah i mean uh, J- i was gonna say like you know J- jamie does a lot of his own stuff in the industry I, I you know obviously did a little bit of work on on some sets and stuff like that as well and you know there there's definitely something very real and very crushing about the sort of constant series of rejections that he's facing. (laughs) And you, you, you know, on on a certain level you do go, yeah, it is kind of like unfair, uh, you know, that, that this guy can't really seem to land his shot. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, (laughs) you're also like, this guy's not all there. (laughs) Yeah. There are like so many scenes where he's like, kind of like, it's going to work out for him. And then he just goes like way too far. Yeah, yeah, they I were like, dude, like they're they're gonna listen to your tape, and they said, look, yeah. we'll give you some criticism, you know, like we didn't love all of your jokes, but you know, work on them a little bit, get in a club, try them out in a live setting, you know, like actually workshop them a little bit, and then uh, you know, we will come watch you at a live show once you've workshopped them a little bit. Like that's such a you know a normal industry thing, and yes, it is very possible that they are just saying that to once again get rid of him, and they don't actually mean it. Yeah. Um, but like you know, his 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 response to real world rejection is with this very sort of like surface level corny greeting card kind of quality that he hits it back <laughs> with. Yeah. And then combined with this, you know, this deep seated like compulsion and pathology of a, of a sociopath that, you know, he, he's going to climb regardless of this rejection. Yeah. There is like a point where he, he makes that tape, which I, I definitely want to get to uh, that scene itself. But um, yes. <laughs> when he does make the tape and give it to the secretary, I there is a scene that seems actually somewhat genuine, which is where she gives it back to him <laughs> and uh, actually has a couple notes that are specific to the tape yes. that was given to, to her. So I, I did mm-hmm. like that. And it kind of correlates well with the ending, which we'll once again get to wh- where he performs and he does what seems to be very well. He seems to do a good job. So mm-hmm. it may, would make sense that she would actually hear that tape, see some potential, but then also say what she says, which I think is reasonable, which is, you know, mm-hmm. craft it, mold it a little better, and and we'll go come see you once you get a couple gigs. Um, mm-hmm. But he just has this sense of, it, it's that tunnel vision. He just has this sense of uh, kind of like, uh, he it's deserves like this already. Yeah, it's a, it, exactly. It's an entitlement. He, he deserves this already. And I think a, a perfect example of like two good examples of his delusions is right at the beginning too, where he comes up to all the people that are getting autographs, which are, are people he knows. He seems to be kind of friends with them in some strange way. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and he says yeah, they're, that they're, they're like got, professional colleague because he used to be an autograph hunter, like interesting, right? Where they're all just like trading like autographs. Yeah, yeah. It's like anyone like got a Rodney Dangerfield, <laughs> I'll trade you for a Barbara or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And he mentions that he's almost like above that now. But then later on, when he brings Rita out on the date, he's just showing her like all the autographs that he has and, oh, and saying that he's like personal friends with I think like Woody Allen or something like that. Okay. Yes. Um, so just and, and then. Yeah, she, 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 he also gifts her his autograph being yeah, like you'll like want to so hold psychotic. on to that <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely I, and that's the thing too it's that confidence that he has as well even though he's completely deluded he he does have a very focused confidence about him where like right in the beginning where he jumps into the car with jerry for instance and uh i can't Incredible believe jerry scene. doesn't just like kick him out right away i mean i'd be kind of frightened to be honest um, yeah, but, well, well, and it's funny, it, he immediately twists his arm on it, right? Because Jerry originally doesn't want to let him in. He's like, no, course, no, no, yeah. I can't, I can't set this precedent. I can't do mm-hmm. this. And, but, but, um, De Niro, like, I saved your life here. Yeah. De Niro <laughs> sees his moment early to very performative, be like, Hey, back away from Jerry, get away from Jerry. <laughs> yeah, like as if yeah. he's not one he's of the same people him. who's there for the, yeah. And then he says, uh, he says to him, I don't mean to be rude. But I did put myself on the line for you, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> he even shows like a little bit of blood on his hand or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then he gives this like well rehearsed, but obviously very rehearsed uh, little spiel to, to Jerry. Um, and one of the lines He's like, that I, I think I, I'm ready. I just need my shot. I just need my shot, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. And I love when Jerry kind of reciprocates and just says, OK, I'll, I'll give you like my, the, my secretary's number. You can get something set up or whatever. And when he yeah, asks, yeah, he's, he, he's like, go through proper channels process, you know, send in a tape, send in an audition. We'll look at you. Yeah. And it's also kind of part of like the whole acting thing, the way that these people are still always acting in a way because later we find out that he just reveals to him he's like i was just doing that to brush you off he comes off as very nice honestly and Mm -hmm. sympathetic at Mm -hmm. first jerry a lot of the time um and there's still a a lot of moments i mean he is going through a very stressful situation i definitely understand it and he meets like Um, weirdos like that like all the time (laughs) yeah yeah um but but, well that's just it that's what's so interesting is that you can tell that scorsese as a filmmaker he both has a little bit of sympathy for the idea of you know like an artist who just can't get their foot in the door. Yes. But he also mm-hmm. has this sort of newfound sympathy for, you know, sort of like these th- this person who, you know, kind of wishes that despite they think they've got what they want, they're kind of still not happy with it. There's still a, a mm-hmm. level of, you know, alienation and isolation that even Jerry feels. Like, I think about that moment a lot, especially on repeat viewings, of uh, him just going home alone, mm-hmm. uh, trying to watch Pick Up on South Street. Uh, which yeah, is he's like kind of the loneliest. Like the only like real interactions he has are with like, like these total weirdos. Otherwise, he's like totally alone in the world. Yeah, yeah. And he's in this and giant empty apartment that's very luxurious, but he just has like mm-hmm. no one to talk to. He's got this big dinner table, and he's just got you know the one plate and glass, and it just feels lonely. It, that you know, it just feels completely empty. Yeah, and there's something so interesting, too, about giving this performance to Jerry Lewis and obviously naming mm. the character Jerry. Like, it has a little bit of right. sort of like a real-life quality to it, but also, um, you know, there's something so interesting about, you know, giving this this actor who, you know, is completely willing to get as, an- would be willing to get as animated as De Niro is, and giving him this very sad sort of straight man performance to that performance. And yeah. again, like watching him at home, trying to just enjoy Pick Up on South Street, another movie about desperate hustlers trying to make a living, 
and having just Masha call him on his home number. And, you know, like he, he thinks he's home. He thinks he's safe. He think, you know, and he still right. can't escape. He's had one long night of just people just assaulting him over <laughs> and over. And, and, and he tells one of them kindly go through the proper channels, you know, just, you know, I, my producer will look at your tape and all Rupert hears is we're best friends now and I'm on the show now. And, <laughs> and, and I love sometime. to De Niro's delivery of, do you know how many times I've had this conversation in my head? And Jerry like, yes. uh, d- did it, did it always go this way? And he's like, yeah, yeah. That confidence <laughs> again. It's great. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that triggers what is sort of like, sort of like the key sort of formal structure of the film, yeah. um, which is the series of sort of elaborate, um, and obsessive fantasies that completely Mm. blend this very sort of, um, you know, kind of more grounded realistic style, even, even for Scorsese with like these overt editing patterns that sort of cue you in on the fact that this isn't actually happening, but there's nothing in the actual sequencing or the way that it's shot to tell you that this isn't happening. And I, I I read that Scorsese very intentionally, did this because he wanted to sort of disorient the viewer at the point where this is a character where, you know, reality and fantasy have so completely blurred that he was like, I wanted to make even the fantasy sequences kind of feel like possible in a sense, like in a way that the viewer could watch them for a minute and be like, Oh, this is, this is happening. He's going to dinner with Jerry. Now he's best Mm. friends with Jerry now, but I love how in the writing and in the performances, it just, it it goes far enough that you just, you can't believe it at a certain point. You're like, it's nice. Yeah. yeah, he's like, Rupert, and, I thank you for meeting me for lunch. I know you're a busy man. You're the most popular <laughs> man. And and De Niro, all humble. He's like, you know, what are friends for, Jerry? You know? yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, parts of like all of his delusions with Jerry is that he's always putting himself in a situation where Jerry needs him. So it's yes. always this thing where he's just like, you know, I I, I have to get the that spot on someone the else show, is the, the desperate time. one. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. Oh, you like six weeks, uh, Rupert? And he's like, ah, I can't even take control of my life for six weeks. What are you talking about? <laughs> he's so yeah. humble. He's so humble in the rehearsed versions. <laughs> it's great. And and another thing that I love with the delusions is that he never um, Scorsese never actually shows his mother but you hear her. Oh yeah. So yes. there, there's something very cool about that where, where, but it's, it's always, yeah. And it's always in a room where it's just him. So, you know, it's, it's, I would probably think at a certain point it's a delusion, especially cause he starts hinting when he does his stand up routine at the end, but she's like uh, dead. about a few things. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I just, I just love that he, he uses something that's still kind of in the physical scene a voice to signify mm-hmm. that it's like he's he's hearing something, but is it really there? And then you can mm-hmm. kind of just be a part of that with the audience because he's actually physically putting the voice in there. So I, I really like that. I also think it's interesting, though, that he has a shot where and I think it's the only one that seems more surreal than than everything else, um, which is where it's kind of this like black and white photo of of people laughing and you hear the audience freeze-framed audience yeah. yeah and then you see him kind of in this like empty hallway that doesn't seem like it's actually a part of his house and it, it feels like a tunnel vision kind of thing that he has yeah. going on um but besides that i feel like most of the delusions and the and all of that are, are kind of mixed in with the real reality of the scene which is cool 
Yeah, mm-hmm. no, for for sure. That's definitely one of the few moments that I wrote down, like that incredible dolly shot of him performing to the fake audience, or some yeah. of the even some of the set design can get a little surreal sometimes. Like the the, 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 the set that he's built of the cutouts <laughs> with the TV show, like it even has some of that like silent era sort of like angular uh, shapes and the and the colors and everything. Like it almost looks like he's like uh, set up like a Doctor Caligari t- uh, talk show or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, so the, the, there's a couple moments where he where he allows himself kind of like the these more um you know sort of expressive or surreal <clears throat> design choices mm-hmm. um but but i will say in comparison to something like raging bull which had mm. the camera in that film just has this really raw expressive mm. freedom to it yeah uh this the style he opted for here is a lot more mannered and locked down uh, yeah it's like I think interesting it's, like I, it you don't have, like the roaming camera that it usually like incorporates. It's like it's very locked down, as you're yeah, saying. Yeah, there's no bravura, Goodfellas one take in this film. You know, mm-hmm. he 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 definitely yeah. went. I want something where I honestly, this feels like the film of him doing a lead character where he is actually trying to keep himself a little at a distance from the character. And I think it was in one to contradict contradict the the sort of erratic lead character. Uh, Mm -hmm. just in the first place, but then also, you know, uh, I think keeping us at a distance from his impulsive psyche, I think does actually Mm -hmm. deliver a level, a level of, you know, disturbing ambiguity for me, which is that, you know, you're just sitting here in the reality of his actions while they make you, you know, laugh or cringe or uncomfortable or scared or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. like we don't get so swept up in his fantasy that we kind of tag along with him. We tag, we, we, we tag along enough through the choices that he makes because of the things going on in his head, um, yeah. which is which is just just interesting because it separates him. I think I think intentionally, I think it was Scorsese probably just trying to separate himself a little bit from Taxi Driver because there's a lot <laughs> of obviously overt comparisons that you know you can you can you can make here between those two uh, characters who have you know uh, very similar but uh you know different sort of relationships with the idea of what is going on in their head versus what's actually going on in in the sort of outer world and they both Mm -hmm. definitely share a little bit of like nervous unpredictable kind of tension uh you -hmm. know of this idea of you know this this very deranged headspace having control over the other characters that you're watching and uh even if this film i don't think has quite those we've covered taxi driver that film has some like really evil menacing vibes to it (laughs) that this one i think you know pulls back from um a a little bit but i think that that's what's interesting is that somehow you know you almost think it's gonna get there but it doesn't yeah but pupkin is a scary character without having to be you know like fully as menacing yeah you know there there there's something um that kind sort of determination of, you know, can be scary <laughs> yeah there's something kind of off-putting about that you know it's 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 more mundane than it is you know sort of like the opera quality of taxi driver and i think that i think that really works for the film uh especially mm-hmm. um uh, but yeah, one of my also favorite things that's happening in this film and has to always get a shadow at every time we talk about Scorsese is that there's some really, really amazing cutting by Thelma Schoonmaker in this film that really oh, accentuates yeah. um, mm. the strangeness of some of the interactions he has or the alienations that the characters have. And one of my favorite moments is that first fantasy sequence that we were talking about where he's having lunch with Jerry. And it basically teaches you how to watch the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
because it's cutting between, you know, the scene with Jerry where he is, you know, uh, Jerry's like, you know, I got to go away for six weeks. You got to take over my show. I got no one else. You, I rely on you, Rupert. You know, you got to take this show for me. He's like, oh, you know, I can't I can't do that. I can't, you know, that's crazy. Uh, OK, I'll do it, Jerry. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, but the cutting is really interesting because it is a very, again, realistic conversation, you know, shot not like any other scene that looks like it's actually happening in the film. But the thing that's cueing you into the fact that it's fantasy is the cutting because all of a sudden without missing a beat with the dialogue or the performance, it will cut to um, De Niro rehearsing the mm, same right. conversation, the same lines that he's having. They don't repeat the lines. It's literally just like it'll cut from Jerry talking to him and then it will cut to a completely different space. And obviously uh, where uh, De Niro is imagining himself having this conversation. That's where you get some of the first in- interruptions where his mother's like, Rupert, who are you talking to? You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but I just love the way that the cutting between the dialogue is super sharp, super clean to the point where the scene is happening to you, the viewer, all at once, but these two completely different spaces become indistinguishable to you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, and that is sort of like, you know, the, the, the key to the film. We have sort of entered uh, his, you know, uh, his uh, blurring of fantasy and reality at that point without, you know, without having to go as crazy as, you know, just showing you in the style that he's clearly, you know, he's high in the sky. He's dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that, that, that's just what makes it sadder. You know, uh, especially the elements with Rita, you know, where Rita is someone who he grew up with and someone who mm. he's kind of uh, pursuing as a means to I, I kind of, I guess, like prove people wrong. I think it was yeah, friend she- of the pod. Will Sloan mm. um, wrote about this and compared it to the Travis Bickle uh, idea of how he wants to sort of like rescue Jodie mm. Foster in that film. Right. But there's, you know, there's sort of like an ulterior motive, psychological motive to him wanting to do that. It's not like completely altruistic. Mm. Um, and Will pointed out there's something similar happening here where he's really using Rita as a prop to impress yeah. Jerry and 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 validate uh, his own existence. And yeah. as, as Will pointed out that, um, you know, he wants to conquer her as a way of conquering, you know, the classmates who ignored him, the yeah, teachers like a- and parents who underestimated him, you know, all of these things that, you know, uh, resulted in, you know, his, his failure or not achieving his goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it seems like she, yeah. she was like a popular girl back when like he was in high school. Now it seems like she's given up on like all of his dreams and it seems like he wants to like pull her up with him in this. Like- yes. Yeah, I, it, I, I, I just love how hilarious his pitch to doing that is. He's like, you know, oh, who's your favorite actress? Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah. Well, she uh, you know, she died tragically alone. I, like, I don't, I don't want, want to see that happen to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Smooth moves. Like just, just such an odd way of, of, of framing that, even though, you know, she can immediately tell, you know, that he is, you know, he's he's a bullshit artist. Mm. Um, yeah. Yet, yet he's saying, you know, I'm going to live in a Hollywood mansion next year and I want you to live with me, Rita. I'm, I'm going to take you out of your your shitty, lowly working girl life. Uh, it's like interesting too that he's like doesn't seem to be like inter like sexually at all. Like she invites him up and he's like not that into it. And like I think right. when he yes. gets to like when he gets to like Jerry's, he's like, oh, we're gonna have like two separate rooms. Like she's entirely just like a symbol for him. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's he's not really romantically interested in her. He's interested in her as a as, as another thing as another goal. It's just yeah, like, like even in like the fantasy, like what's like is it the principal or his teacher like uh, he, uh, that marries him in that fantasy? Yes, <laughs> what a sequence. <laughs> <laughs> 
where they, they I, I can't remember exactly what it is that they say and i'll probably come back to it when when i, I find it in my notes somewhere here but like that that sequence where it, they and and i love too that scorsese recreates the full tv style like we're watching mm-hmm. it on like a shitty tv right. from back in the day and yep. they they put on the show and, and jerry's like you know you're my best friend rupert and now we're gonna get now we're gonna get you married on the show he's like oh my god and your principal is here and your principal here is marrying you and he's saying you know what pupkin we all underestimated you we thought you were stupid but it turns out that you were right the whole time and you're a genius and like and he even has the entire nation apologize yes. and thank him for like all his greatness it's it's incredible he gets the entire country to worship him it's it's an amazing sequence yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I, I just love how by the time that we've hit that point, like it, it obviously it sounds so ridiculous, but it's, it's not as like built into the film as ridiculous. It's built in right. as like, no, no, this is an achievable goal that he is going to meet once Jerry gives him the show spot in like a day, which That's he true. already <laughs> promised to do by just mm-hmm. saying his secretary would listen to his tape. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So that, that stuff's all really, um, Fantastic! I, I love all the sequences of, of, of him alone in, in his set with the cardboard cutouts, uh, putting on the, the versions uh, of, of the show, again, rehearsing these There's, things that we eventually yeah, like, these see These are the, the only people he's performed for, and it's just like fake, it's cardboard cutouts. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of, of Jerry and of like Marilyn Monroe, and I think Humphrey Bogart is one of the cutouts as well. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something. So, he, so he's got taste. Yeah, definitely. I think there's also <laughs> something creepy about just when he's when he's making that tape for the, the secretary or what he thinks is Jerry. Um, it, it, right in between the takes where he's you know just pressing the the record button and stop and start or whatever, he's yelling at his uh, well maybe there maybe not mother. And there's mm. just also kind of a, a creepy factor to thinking of her listening to the tape and not really knowing what's being cut out <laughs> in between those tapes, oh, yeah. Yeah. which is just him <laughs> yelling at somebody in a room that isn't probably there. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I just thought that that was an interesting little thought, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I also love how much uh, detail is given to the way that he just controls social situations. Yeah. Mm. Um, he like is I, good I, I at love kind of persuading people to keep listening to him, which is something else. Well, there's there, there's like that bit when he first brings the tape in, and he's like, you know, Jerry and I. He goes up to the like the the office. He's like, Jerry and I discussed me being on the show last night, and uh, they're like, well, <laughs> do you have like an appointment? Like, what do you want to do? And he's like, I'll wait, I'll wait in the lobby. <laughs> yeah, and, he, and uh, I, I love that he's even like he knows that people are looking at him, so he starts like performing interest in the ceiling. He's like, is that is. Is that cork? Is, is that cork? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I've heard that's good for sound, you know? And I just love how every, you know, sort of realistic performance around him is just very polite and sort of patient with him. And his yeah. genius is being able to very pathetically, you know, sort of like weaponize that politeness. Yeah, so like it's that, all you know, like a means to an end for him. Like uh, as like a comedian, like he doesn't really care about like connecting with anybody, which is why he's like performing for like cardboard cutouts. Uh, he doesn't like yes. care about anybody really. Yeah. It's well, he, just he, he talks to real people stage. the same way he talks to a cutout, right? Because that that's just it. Is he, he's like, you know, there's this vision of what they are going to respond 
Bond because mm-hmm. he scripted it. And the whole movie is watching him deal with like actual people who aren't necessarily <laughs> giving him the exact and scripted conversation that he imagined, yeah. even if they're perfectly nice people like uh, mm-hmm. the, the executive producer's assistant who takes his tape played by uh, Shelley Hack, who uh, we mm-hmm. talked about actually once before, Jamie, she was on The Stepfather. Oh, right, right. Uh, And and I think she was on Time After Time as well, actually, now that I think about it. Um, And she's she's quite good, too, because she's sort of a counterpoint to Masha, where she's supposed to be kind of like the the sort of working professional. Mm -hmm. And she's she's very, you know, kind of kind to him and actually does give him real pointers and, you know, does kind of take him um, seriously. And you can tell that, you know, he just has so little thought for her. And mm-hmm. like right. her, her ability in the workplace to actually judge him or to know yeah. what the show is looking for or anything yeah, like, like she's right. At he one point, like he, play it like in front of people. Like uh, he's never like bothered yeah. to like run this. The, there's anybody. nothing that she says that's not like absolutely true. Which is like regardless of the quality of his material, you know, like no one just gets the late night TV show. It's <laughs> like no, no, no. Get a stand up gig workshop some of your stuff with a live audience. See what people respond to and what they don't, and come back. Like it's the, yeah. the, the like she she gives him like the kindest note anyone could give in the entire world, <laughs> and and uh, he he reads it the same way that he has conversations with um with with Masha pretty much who he just has you know he thinks of her as like a like a dog, yeah. um, like that, that conversation they have out front the building. When, you know, he he's the one who's getting into the building and he's, you know, he's got this more, he's got the suit on, he's got this surface professionalism. He has so much in common with Masha's behavior, but because he mm. performs differently and he looks differently, you know, he's like, you're a fucking wacko. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Masha's just being it through and through where Rupert's putting it on. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're both pursuing the same thing, but like, you know, Rupert is just doing it in a way that has this more sort of, um, you know, uh, surface, uh, societal acceptance to it kind of in a way where she's just like, no, 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 we should just kidnap him and rape him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they have like, like, uh, like, go ahead. I was gonna say like, what's interesting, like he wants to be Jerry while she like just wants to be with them. And I feel like that's like the counter. Yeah. Yeah. Them. That's true. Fuck. I mean, like I, I love the sequences when Masha does act when they do end up trying to kidnap Jerry and she <laughs> literally gets Jerry alone. That shot of with the romantic candlelight, but Jerry just with like 600 pounds of tape on him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think like Scorsese called her like a sexual terrorist, which is like such a fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great term. <laughs> oh this is, this is what Marty's afraid of. We now know. Um, <laughs> yeah, she, so like the, that stuff's really fantastic, and she gives a really great performance too. Oh, she's um, great, Sandra yeah. Bernhard. She's putting it all out on the line too. Like she really has to be a, a very vulnerable and and out there character. Like at at one point where she's, you know, kind of like sitting on Jerry's lap, and she's just expressing how she's going to have a really fun time, um, and it kind of just gets a, like almost angrier and a little bit more uh, aggressive as as she explains mm-hmm. what they're going to do and how much fun they're going to have that night. And she slowly lets in some detail detail about like yes. her family life too that's kind of sad yeah, it's and like stuff my as parents well, never and... told me they loved me but she's kind of trying to brush it off as if it's mm-hmm. fine because I didn't love them either but you can tell that this has been a very deep rooted pain that has uh, 
cre- created yeah, probably resulted a lot in her of having this. unhealthy relationships with what expressing love is. Exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so Sandra Bernhard's amazing in this. Uh, I can't express that enough. She's she's just as good as Robert De Niro in this, hundred percent. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing too, and I think it's something Scorsese's mentioned a couple times. He's like, like De Niro, you know, I've worked with him a lot. He's amazing. The performance is incredible. Oh, yeah. But he also thought that a lot of the supporting actors went sort of like undercredited. Yeah, because um, Jerry, like you were saying, he was he's play, Jerry himself is playing like that straight man. So it's it's hard for people to to you know really realize what he's doing in the movie. But I think he is fantastic at at you know th- like the beginnings when we were talking about how he's kind of brushing him off but doing it in a polite way I even like when he turns around when he keeps saying like you're a king Jerry you're a king and he like does finger guns at him <laughs> or whatever but very yeah. like, yeah. kind of sarcastically and then there's that great scene which we should maybe talk about with uh, when when he brings Rita to his house <laughs> unannounced oh my god um, like Jerry's that is that is honestly one that. of the most hard to watch scenes yeah, so in terms painful. of the <laughs> Oh yeah, you feel in, so in, bad in, for in terms Rita. of the, the the performance. Yeah, because he he literally brings Rita to Jerry's like country uh, country home. Yeah, for the weekend, saying that you know, convincing her that he's like best friends with Jerry. He's going to dinner. He's doing work with Jerry. He's even brought over some work from the office to give to Jerry. And you, watching him cynically weaponize Rita mm. uh, when Jerry, because Jerry, you know, immediately he come as soon as his. Um, his uh, the, the employees who work at the house like contact him to be like, there's a guy here with a girl. He says he knows you. Like, we don't know what's going on. And he's like, oh, my fucking God. He comes <laughs> home. He finds this dude who, you know, won't stop like terrorizing his office <laughs> and yeah. won't leave him alone. And the dude has broken into his house with this woman. And there's something so freaky to me about the way that um, he actually Pupkin, gets in. He, well, and, and, and the way the pupkin uses Rita in that moment to be like, you know, right. Rita's just here for a good time, Jerry. You wouldn't want to ruin her good time. Like, he's using her as a tool to be like... Yeah, it's like, don't make like, her feel bad, Jerry, even though yeah. it's like, you yeah. put her in this situation, dude. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, yeah. there's he, he knows how to weaponize social situations like that, and Jerry is just so fed up at that point, and, you know, he's, he's very stern, he's very unamused and angry. Um, and yeah, you can, you can even watch him that, you know, immediately he at first goes, okay, I don't want to blow up at this girl. Cause I don't know, you know, like really what she's doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, but yeah, then he immediately starts being like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to play along with this. Like De Niro thinks and pupkin the, the way that he kind of plays it. He's like, you know, you know, Jerry, you know, that's fine. How's your golf game? Oh, are we going to have some like lunch later and shit? Like he's me and yeah. like the situation is he's broken in this guy's home and he's yeah. immediately being trying to get him to agree to like get him some food. Yeah. And it just keeps the delusion. Like Jerry's outright saying what's wrong with you. You're crazy. Get out of my house. And he's still acting as if Jerry's just like playing around, just joking. It, it, Jerry's it's, like it's a got brick a, wall. It's yeah, like very yeah. funny to watch yeah, Jerry go just, up against it. Just got his arms crossed the entire time, stern face, like, and, and, and Rupert just basically wants to keep reenacting what he's had in his head this entire time. And he mm-hmm. can't let that go. Um, and I love, I, I gotta give it up for Jerry of these, these couple lines here. I love when, um, he's like, I told you to, to call to get rid of you. And then Rupert responds with, uh, is that what you're like when you're on the top? And then he goes, no, that's what I was like before. <laughs> I've always been an asshole. I thought that, that was hilarious. And I also really like the line where he's just like, well, I have a life too, Jerry. And he's like, that's not my responsibility. 
<laughs> like what's wrong with you like it, it, and so yeah i just wanted to give a shout out to jerry on this scene in particular because oh, yeah. i just think his, i love when like, rupert's like great. i made some mistakes and then like jerry was like uh you know who else made mistakes like, hitler made mistakes <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a good one too yeah. which 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 is funny because i'm i'm not sure if that was scripted or if it was an improvised line because i did read that supposedly uh, De Niro was like hitting Jerry before, ah, like okay. off camera with with anti-Semitic remarks oh. to like <laughs> get get him riled up. <laughs> yeah, That's wild. I heard that too. I did. I did. I did hear that Jerry was okay with it. So I guess we should maybe okay. yeah. say that. But it is pretty wild <laughs> that he he did that shit. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't do that on set to people without you know talking to them <laughs> like, about doing it to them really on set. Expressive permission. <laughs> Yes, that but Jerry, Jerry yeah, Jerry uh, did uh, apparently have like a really great time um, uh, filming the uh, yeah. the the movie. And Hopefully, that, he means you know, it. <laughs> yeah, I mean his 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 only note um, about the movie was the same as uh, basically all the critics, which is he thought that uh, Pupkin should have killed him. That was his oh, only yeah. note. He was like, he was like, ah, if I was sure. making the movie, I would have had Pupkin kill me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I but but that, he's like, actually. otherwise, it's a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I heard. I think it was. I, it might have been Jerry or someone else that I read, but I thought it was Jerry that said, like, it, even apart from the killing, he did think that uh, him and Rupert not having some kind of wrap up seemed strange to him. Um, I, I can't remember if that was Jerry, but I, I did read that somewhere. It, it, so. it might have been. Yeah, there's there's something sort of similar to that. I mean, a lot of people felt the same way. Again, a lot of people were saying that it was sort of like frustrating and irritatingly sort of anticlimactic that it, it never it's a movie that threatens to explode like Taxi Driver does. And it <laughs> right. builds with that tension, but then doesn't actually end up exploding. But I think there's something interestingly said about you know, like what it's actually getting at by doing that. Yeah. And for um, me, that exciting moment is kind of the lead up to whether or not this guy has any skill. And as, mm-hmm. as far as the, the film presents it, um, I think, uh, it seems as if he actually did and, and kind of did have a, a decent skill. He had good timing. Uh, you know, yeah. he was getting response from his jokes. Um, so yeah yeah and so for me that is kind of the explosive scene it's kind of like whether or not he did all this for even like even less than um well it's, it's like whether or not he did all this uh for nothing like did he actually mm-hmm. have talent this entire time and it is kind of relieving to know that he did have a little bit when it and it makes it like a lot more interesting too, because like it could have been, it could have just been like, oh, he's like terrible at it, and he's got he just bombs. For- <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would just be mean. I feel like <laughs> yeah, that'd be really, really heartbreaking. <laughs> but it's like interesting though. Like the worst of it is like, oh, he just like he's rehearsed it too much. He's like never played it in front front of like a performance, uh, in front of like an audience. But like he's not bad at writing jokes. No, no, mm-hmm. and and I I do think that he's got good timing and i i think that he does it on purpose too where de niro has this very um like choreographed timing it doesn't feel very mm-hmm. natural or improvised it feels like everything yeah. else we've seen from him like it's 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 been uh, focused onto a t it's been written like all the timing is is mm-hmm. uh, perfect and and all of that so um i did like that aspect of it too that it doesn't come off it comes off as exactly as it should from from rupert I, I do like that half his set was just about his mom being an alcoholic, which I think is <laughs> meant to be another sort of sad detail and that, that you're supposed dead. to kind of pick up. Yeah. Which, which is which, scary, which again, you're, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. It's a scary which, moment. Which is, 
which is one of those things where you're kind of like, okay, so was he again? Was this part of the fantasy, or was this just him exaggerating for yeah, the it bit? Could be but him he did his mom, wishing his mom was dead, really. Yeah, but he, but, but but he 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 did uh, say earlier in the film that his his style before we actually seen what his material is, and he's kind of pitching his style is that he, you know, I take all the bad things that have happened to me and try to like spin them into something funny. Mm, so right, when right. when you kind of hear that that that's his his idea of what his material actually is then you actually see his material in that way and how mm. you know he didn't have a great sort of home life and you know that stuff's definitely you know uh it, again it, it's just ambiguous enough and j- that you know there's a little bit of complication there and you know things that are you know at once kind of intriguing and upsetting at the same time i think it's really cool that the jokes are very self-deprecating and for us who who has been with this character for so long and have kind of now understood him at a certain point um the jokes come off much more sad whereas i could see mm-hmm. someone like the audience for instance and not knowing who this guy is just a comedian that's kind of being self-deprecative and whatever would mm-hmm. not see the sadness as much in in those jokes like for me when i watch that mm-hmm. scene i am very sad because it's him kind of expressing and honestly being truthful for the first time in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so, uh, I just, I just kind of like that contrast between like us as an audience and the audience that's actually watching him on the talk show. I think that that's kind of cool too. Well, and, and I just, I love that, you know, again, the, the, the kind of buildup that gets there, because again, it's so much of, you know, him just insisting upon this one conversation he had with Jerry, meaning that he's taking over the show now, which is obviously ridiculous. And, you know, all the kind of different conversations that, you know, he ends up pushing the explosion at the um at the country home where he's like, I'm going to work 50 times harder than you did. Even, you know, I'm going right. to, I'm going to achieve it. Cause you know, he's getting, you know, and, and he goes, then you're going to have 50 idiots like you to deal with or whatever. <laughs> I love all the um, industry shit that they cut to where it's like the, all the execs wondering if they should put him on or not. And then the lawyer who's just like, you're, I'm suing all everybody. that stuff is so I'm great. I'm suing you. I'm suing the FBI. <laughs> so, it's very funny. Yeah. Well, and, and, and one of my, my favorite ones is because like obviously immediately he goes from that to being like okay well th- this isn't working anymore so now we need to go to the next level so he recruits Masha to do a straight up kidnapping of Jerry which gets into you know like the, the POV shots of them in the car with the sunglasses mm. and the, the hats and the fake guns like it's really yeah, funny but stuff. then you also go okay but they are really kidnapping like Jerry Lewis <laughs> yeah that's the thing and and they even he adds like a, a, a physical gag to the actual kidnapping too because the shot when Robert De Niro gets out he has a, a gun which turns out to be fake but right now you think it's real and he uh, he drops it as he's getting out of the yes. car to get Jerry in and he runs over picks it back up puts gets over to Jerry he's like get it get it and it's just so you know comical and pathetic and hilarious yeah I I love those little details like that because they're small details. You don't know if they were actually scripted or if they just ended up working out that way, but it's <laughs> yeah. amazing watching him drop that gun or, or in the, the first conversation with Jerry, there's a part where De Niro appears to like forget a line and does this like windmilling motion with his hands for like five seconds. Right. And I kept wondering is like, is that, is that pupkin like having a glitch in his like <laughs> rehearsed thing? Like you're, you're never really exactly sure. It's, yeah. it's really, really great. And Scorsese obviously kind of shot it on the fly in New York. York to kind of capture that spontaneity a little bit as well, despite the fact that his style is very locked down. Mm-hmm. And man, that just really amplifies 
the tension and the unpredictability, especially when you get to like the moments where like, you know, he's got Jerry calling up the studio being like, you know, uh, you know, I've been taken hostage. They're going to fucking kill me. He, he's, he's going to get tonight's monologue or they're going to kill me. But I love the way that he's, you know, De Niro is showing him these little like reading cue cards. It is like, I have a gun at my head. (laughs) Well, yeah. Then there's a part where like he flips one card and Jerry's has to like roll his eyes. He's like the cards upside down. And so then he has to like flip it. There's another part where there's like a completely blank card and he's like, Oh my God, this guy, he's so incompetent. And, and you're not honestly in that scene too. I don't know if he's doing like that. Uh, you, you, I think it was Andy Kaufman where he would like on purposely fuck shit up to kind of troll people. And so I, yeah. I, I like that in that scene too, at this point, I don't trust his character enough to not be performing or not. So it, it's just kind of like, did, did he on purposely do that to maybe get a laugh at out of Jerry, but he just pissed him off or something like that. I, I kind of have that thought when I'm watching it. And I love it. Well, and, my, my, and it has one of my favorite Jerry lines in that moment too, where he finally gets to the end where it's just like, you know, or, you know, it's like, he's going to get the monologue or like he won't be alive. And it's, and he just goes, well, it's not grammatically correct, but I think you have the idea. <laughs> you know, he's going to kill me if you don't give him the monologue tonight, you know? And, and, and meanwhile, he's monologuing all about how friendship is a two way street, Jerry, Yeah, you know? <laughs> oh man. Uh, that, that stuff's all, you know, fantastic. And yeah, he literally, all the conversations of all the industry people being like, is this a hoax? I love how it takes Jerry calling like three times before they actually pick up because they <laughs> just like, yeah, there's this guy who's an impressionist of Jerry and always calls us as a gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they have to, they, I like the, it's probably a real industry thing where they have this, uh, or they, like, they, they this like them. code. Yeah. They have yeah. a code yeah. so that they can be like, is this the real person or not? Um, so that was just kind of an interesting little thing they threw in there. I like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I, I like Jerry too, like, you know, getting real with him in that moment where he's tied up at one point too and saying, you know, like, you know, there are very real pressures, you know, like every day. And if I have, right. you know, if I have done something wrong in our interactions together, like I am really sorry. <laughs> and you can, you can kind of feel that, you know, he's like, if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm sorry. And, you know, he, he kind of believes it. Um, but he's like, you know, uh, at this point, Rupert needs to, you know, he, he's, he's kind of got the, the advantage in this moment and he's going to pressure and he's going to do the thing that he is, is there to do, which is get, you know, uh, 10 minutes of talk show in exchange for, you know, a famous man's life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I I love all the lawyers freaking out about it and being like, what are we going to do? And what is he going to say? Can we can we read your monologue? You know, we don't want you like activating terrorists around the globe. (laughs) (laughs) All the conversations they have are so funny. And I love his total lack of care for any like consequences afterwards. It's just such a tunnel vision of getting on that stage and doing his 10 minutes and showing the world all the skills that he has. Like even the scene before it where he uh, he's with the cops and they're basically like, you're under arrest. You understand that? He's like, oh, yeah, I totally, totally get it. And he's got like a smile on his face and he's just ready to go, ready to perform. It's fantastic. Yeah, that that stuff's all really, really strong and obviously builds up to De Niro finally getting on the on on the show, doing the thing. My, my favorite aspect of this is that because they've so formally had us understand what is, you know, like the fact that this guy has such an unhinged relationship with reality that you, you honestly don't know 
what in this last like 15 minutes happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I, th- I do think like just the way that it, it shows it in the bar and all of that, it, it seems mm-hmm. as if he did perform and perform well. Mm-hmm. But the thing that, yeah, I like that sequence in the bar when, when, when he goes to read his bar and turns the TV and stands up there and he's like, Rita, take a look at this. Yeah. Well, I like that this. The first time we see the, 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 the set too, it was like, he, we wait until he like brings it out to like her, to her at the bar. Oh yeah, that's true. They kind of cut away from the actual like live performance and then just go right mm-hmm. back to the cops again. Um, yeah, like so, it's yeah. her that he like needs to prove it to. Yeah, where, yeah, that's where, where, where they were like, are th- is this guy the dumbest guy ever? <laughs> like, what, what's your deal? <laughs> They're yeah. like, do you understand what's happening right now? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I think I should get made up. <laughs> I think I should get my makeup on. I, I want someone from the TV show in here right now. And they were like, dude, you're being interrogated for kidnapping. <laughs> I also love that after uh, he performs and, um, you know, he's, he's got his like confidence and, and all of that from from doing it and showing it to Rita. Uh, the cops are still hounding him and saying like, oh, that wasn't very funny. That wasn't good. And he's just like, no, nah, I disagree. <laughs> he basically hounds him <laughs> from Uncut Gems. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I disagree. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's good stuff. I also think it's kind of uh, this is a smaller thought, but I, I think it's kind of creepy just to look at the first talk show host that comes out to replace Jerry. And I understand that it's his job and, you know, he'd have, he'd have to put it on and, and, and all of that. But it's just like how good they are at putting it on is kind of creepy when mm. they think at least that Jerry is being held at gunpoint and could be shot in the head at any moment in time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's I mean, something, like the show just like has to go on. Yeah, exactly. There's something kind of eerie about that that I like to. Yeah, when 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 they're introducing him for for his performance. Yeah, and and um, when he, I, it's kind of funny too, though, in this like ironic way where he just outright tells the audience that the only way like, he can get this gig. Yeah, they were like, "What a great bit! Oh, you've kidnapped Jerry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you strapped him to a chair. And my, I think my favorite part of that is when he says it was the only way for me to get on this stage because <laughs> it's hundred percent true. And uh, yeah, there's just there's just a lot of humor involved in him actually. Just it's the only way I could break into that. show biz- business, baby. Um. <laughs> it's so good. He's like, and and you'll see tomorrow. You know, I'm not actually lying. I wasn't kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he's like, and you'll think I was crazy, but look, I figure it this way: better to be a king for a night than a schmuck for a lifetime. Uh, he gets to leave out with his one liner. I want to clap. He. He, he, he gets to show Rita. He gets to show Rita. And he's like, I won't forget about you, Rita. And the guy, I love the guy in the bar pointing. He's like, hey, that's the guy that was on the TV. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting his recognition. And, the nation is recognizing and then and, and then we get the sort of final montage of, you know, where they're, everyone, the news is talking about the bizarre debut of this brand new comedian. He's getting news coverage. And, yeah. you know, uh, you know he's, he's, he's got six years in prison, but he's writing his, you know, memoirs while he's in there, king for a night. And every magazine he's on the cover of every magazine and he eventually gets out he gets out he gets a television special and they're like ladies and gentlemen rupert pupkin yeah and there's (laughs) wonderful rupert pupkin ladies and gentlemen i love how many it repeats like a variation on that like like seven or eight times it's it it gets very eerie at a certain point and definitely i think that's meant to clue you in on whether any of that stuff actually took place or not or whether that is like his his vision of how that goes after the fact yeah i think i think it's exactly that i think it's a vision of what he sees to come after his prison sentence 
Um, cause mm-hmm. I would believe like, you know, if he did successfully get up there and, and have a good set and people found out that this is what he did to do it, there would be like a niche audience for that. That would absolutely eat it up and be like, this guy's a legend. So, um, I could, I could believe a successful Rupert pumpkin after his prison sentence, <laughs> but it's definitely yeah, it, 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 that reality. Yeah, yeah, but it's definitely in that moment, like, it's, like, the way that the announcer says it over and over again, and he's mm. just kind of got this smile on his face, and it, it does feel like a somewhat a- empty uh, studio. It doesn't, it doesn't quite seem as lively mm. as a reality would be, so I, I don't know, but yeah. I, I do really like that ending. Well, I think I, that's what I would say. I would say, that, the, like, literally the final last few seconds take on a stranger quality than just, like, you know, even though like this is similar, obviously, to the ending of Taxi Driver, where like mm-hmm, the newspapers right. all say this guy is like a hero, even though we, you know, we've spent a while enough to, uh, enough time with him to know that he's really not. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, but, but I, I do think. And, and I think there was something cynical in there about the idea of, you know, how then people sort of ingest this story that they've heard and everything. And I think that's something similar that's happening here. But mm-hmm. I do think that this makes the deliberate choice to have this very eerie, strange uh, hold on the actual talk show that he gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I, I think that that ending um, is is perfect. And I think it very specifically gets into the overall idea that's been layered throughout the film, starting with the first sort of fantasy sequence that he has with Jerry's conversation about this, you know, this idea of his sort of obsessive consumption of media, like completely detaching him from reality to the point where the fantasy is now dictating and imposing itself mm-hmm. onto reality. And where obviously yeah. the end vicious, <laughs> the, the end goal of this is a vicious cycle of like, you know, uh, America being taken hostage by a charismatic psychopath of a character. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, and the journey is very intentionally kind of infuriating and skin crawling and, and, and really bleakly, you know, funny. Like I, I think, I think some people, you know, I, I think the first time I watched this, I definitely felt more discomfort than I did sort of humor. But on, on rewatches, I get a lot more out of the sort of like anti-comedy qualities that it has. Yeah. Um, like there's there's so much, you know, you know, uh, you, you got to respect the hustle, the, the <laughs> diabolical <laughs> hustle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and, and despite the fact that everything Marty is doing is, you know, an attempt to kind of rub our face and kind of like the, you know, the sort of like more mundane, depressing reality of what this character is doing to the people around him. Mm. Um, and, and also showing a little bit of sympathy both to, you know, the character of Jerry, who is kind of now sort of like this, you know, this slave to this, this, this industry and this sort of image that he's created of himself, even if it's not who he is when he, you know, goes home and wants to watch a movie. Um, and and also, you know, sympathetic to the conditions that drive someone, you know, to uh, <laughs> to, you know, the, the, the struggling conditions of, you know, a, an artist who just wants to make it, man. I, I mean, everyone's been there on some level. I don't know if everyone's gone this route with it. But <laughs> I, might, I think, you know. You know yeah, we'll find out if Jamie, you know, I'll announce on this show the day that Jamie goes Rupert Pupkin mode and I, I have to go solo for an episode. And he's like, yeah, he's locked up. Gosh, I got we don't know. <laughs> I don't know what band you would take hostage, but you took a band hostage. Yeah, I'm still thinking about it, narrowing it down. 
<laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, d- d- so I, I find the movie very funny and pivoting. I think towards reductive rating round, which for you, Michael's, where we remove all the words, all the nuance, and reduce the movie to a number between one and five. But it's also kind of become final statements, or you know, if there was any uh, lines or any scenes that we maybe miss, we like to bring them up and kind of catch them here at the end. But yeah, I think I think that for me, this is honestly a pretty easy five. I mean, oh, yeah. it's. You know, not not to say, you know, this is Scorsese. The dude has a lot of fives for me, <laughs> but I and, and and this has since been, I think, really reclaimed by people. Um, so, you know, I, I think this kind of is for a lot of people kind of considered like a uh, a, a kind of like top. I hope top five. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. If it's Might not, it me, probably yeah. should be. Yeah, I think it's definitely um, top tier Scorsese. Yeah, like it's it it really is top tier, and it deserved more than the tepid reaction that it got, especially when oh, yeah. it came out, and 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 you know being a, a bomb and everything like that, and kind of being made fun of a little bit, you know, despite you know even if you thought it failed, it was it was an ambitious failure, uh, mm. if nothing else, for yeah. you know for people, and 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 I think just everything that failed about it has been. Um, sort of righteously clarified as, you know, sort of like the intent of the movie, you know, like right. the, the, the I, I, I don't see how an explosion of violence at the end of this film makes it a better film. Um, yeah, I think, I think that there is some worse and kind of just sad in a way I don't think would ring true to the rest of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think there's something so interesting and kind of almost scarier about it that it is kind of like slightly lower stakes, mm-hmm. but like still that, <laughs> but still that sort of pathological obsession with yeah. the, you know, and, and the absurdity of, you know, his relationship with celebrity and with the industry is, is, is all there. And I think that Scorsese expertly, you know, people a lot of the time like to talk about him as someone who only has like, you know, one kind of style, which is obviously not true in yeah. any case, because the man has made all kinds of different films. But this in particular is a really interesting note if you compare it to his seventies and his eighties run, because I think he really does adjust his style to not get swept up in the hysteria of the character, which is what I think people wanted, which is what people were like. That's what we kind of expected. We wanted more subjectivity, um, you know, done in a more heightened style. And instead he, you know, toned down that so that the blurring of reality and fantasy was just more mundane. Um, and the, the the way that, you know, he, the way that we just instead sit with him, you know, this walking fantasy, interacting with real surroundings and real people. Um, and I find that a lot more troubling, honestly, (laughs) I find that a lot more ambiguous and a lot more disturbing. Um, you know, because you know, it, it, it depicts show business as this thing that obviously very clearly connects people, but it's also kind of like this, you know, in some ways it's kind of something that you interact with. That's kind of monstrous and kind of isolating at the same time. And I think both Rupert and Jerry, as characters experience it in, in different ways. And I think De Niro and Scorsese both, both really got into the milieu of sort of like late night TV and stand up comedy. I like how even some of the shot, simple shot reverse shot he picked was like, clearly he was just pulling from like the way that TV was shot and the way that, that comedy was shot. Um, and, uh, I think it made it, you know, successfully feel, uh, the movie feel kind of cynical and kind of pathetic in some ways without having to resort to any very simple moralizing, I think is really the key. Yeah. Uh, You know, again, it's, he doesn't get up there and bomb. He doesn't, you know, there's, there's nothing, I, I think, you know, super, super, um, you know, uh, simple about the film. 
And I think that that is what kind of makes it sit in your mind a little bit um, longer. And again, the casting of Jerry Lewis as the sad, unamused straight man to De Niro just going off like crazy, I think is a real stroke of genius and an understated quality to what makes the film um, work. Again, his anguish and and anger at this beast that he's just destined to reckon with forever because he's achieved his own dream is really effective and I think creates a really dark undercurrent to the fact that, you know, we're watching a character trying to achieve um, his dream. So yeah, anyway, this movie I think is genius. And it has many, many artists involved in this at the top of their game, making you trying to make you feel as uncomfortable and kind of irritated and uh, sad. Um, and I think it was, you know, probably destined to bomb and be misunderstood. But I'm I'm glad to see that it is revered many years later. And oh, and one line I wanted to point out that we somehow didn't get to that I wanted to bring out because it's a line that will sit with me forever. I think about this line all the time is De Niro in that recording room, recording the tape for Jerry, thinking that Jerry's going to listen to it Mm -hmm. and and being like, you know, all (laughs) these big shots, you know, they ignore the struggling artists and, you know, they're all, you know, I think they're all just cynics embittered by their, by their own failure. The fact that people don't, um, you know, think that big shots will talk to us. And then he goes, I know Jerry that you are as human as the rest of us. If not more so, (laughs) (laughs) which must be like especially shattering, I guess, for him in particular when he has that moment in Jerry's house and he says like, oh, you're just like the rest on top and all of that. So anyway. Yeah, well, and and also the idea that like the walking performance that is like the most inhuman performance in the movie saying that, you know, being a the the dictator of uh, what is and isn't human is also just very funny to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I uh, yeah. I, I agree with with all of that. I, I think this is a five absolute masterpiece. Um, I was surprised to see that that it wasn't uh uh, at least a box office success when it came out because you know you got Scorsese right after Raging Bull you got De Niro um, uh, Jerry Lewis I, I know had a had a huge following and uh, so I, oh yeah, yeah man in, in the in the in the in the 60s and 70s especially Nutty yeah. Professor Ladies Man those right. movies went off for people absolutely so <laughs> yeah, like what era is this for Jerry Lewis in the 80s. Uh, Jerry Jerry was primarily the 60s, but is still into the 70s and into the 80s, honestly. But I, I do think mm. that his peak of him as a director making really big films, a lot of his biggest films are from the 60s. Gotcha, mm. yeah. Yeah, but uh, so, I mean, all of these, all three, I think, of the leads here have powerhouse performances, including Jerry, who has to kind of play that straight man. But I, I think he does it really, really well. I think he has uh, a, a great understanding of this kind of attitude you have to give within show business and uh, an unfortunate attitude you have to give within show business and kind of like, I love the way that he politely brushes him off, but only to reveal later on that it was exactly that a, a brush off. He wasn't really sincerely trying to, uh, to, to, to hear Rupert, but you, you also understand there is a sympathy for Jerry that I think is, is, is really good because even though he has some moments where you think like he might be short with people, has a temper, angry, whatever, this guy is being stalked and eventually almost raped by <laughs> fanatics. So, uh, you know, you gotta have some sympathy there. Um, but, but regardless, I think Sandra Bernhardt too is incredible. She's really just giving it her all. And, and where Robert De Niro has oh, some yeah. more safety with kind of his like silliness and his, um, 
his fake demeanor with the suit and, and all of that and his fake image. Uh, Sandra just has to put it all out on the line the entire time. She's, um, yeah, you know, she's she's unhinged at certain points. She's, uh, you know, very sympathetic at certain points, especially when they start to kind of uh, slowly reveal her past, but very subtly. I like the way they do that too. The way that they uh, reveal their pasts through themselves saying it, but in this way that they're kind of trying to lie about it and trying to kind of be still distance from it with Rupert. It's like his jokes. And with Sandra, I guess it's the way that she views Jerry. Um, so I, yeah, I, thought, I, I, I love that she like dresses him in like a nice sweater <laughs> and is like, yeah. I, I feel so impulsive tonight. Anything can happen. Yeah. And I like that she puts on this, this kind of, we forgot to talk about this where she puts on this kind of like, uh, like the, um, uh, I guess it's like a not a makeup artist, but whatever you would call someone that would dress her a dresser maybe or something um, where she's kind of like, oh, that 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 color is fabulous. It's just absolutely great. And and I, yeah. I like that she's trying to like play uh, a little bit in show business like she's she, she has a position in, in show business or something like that. That was cool, too. I like that. Um, but yeah, oh, well, and, and we forgot to mention she sings the Ray Charles song back oh, to him yeah. at one oh, point. Yeah. And, and I, I'm glad you said that because I almost forgot. She actually has a decent voice, like at, at certain parts. Yeah, like she's. She, and so that was something I found kind of. Uh, she's talented sad too. Is that <laughs> yeah? She. They both have talent, but they're just too deluded uh, and kind of unstable for them to really focus and, and hone in on it. Uh, Rupert eventually does, but I found yeah. it sad that yeah, Masha I, I, didn't I, get I to. I almost forgot the, the the part where she's like running in her underwear like through the streets like screaming for Jerry. <laughs> I think that's like the oh, last yeah. time that we see her. And he's got tape <laughs> oh, yeah, all around Yeah, she's not him. a part of like, it is like interesting that like, she's not a part of all of, all of like his fantasy at the end. Like we don't know what happens to Masha at the end. Yeah, and it's that's kind of sad too. It's like Rupert well, it's like he was using. Oh, she anybody. was. She was totally a tool. It's a tool. Totally a tool. tool. Everyone like Rita, around him is a tool. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, um, five absolute masterpiece. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. For you, Michael. Uh, yeah, I agree with uh, both of you. It's. It's. Uh, I think it's a solid five. Uh, like I, I think it's uh, Scorsese. Like as a creative, I think he understands that. Like how like uncomfortable it is to like have like any ambition in like the field you want to be in and like also like how delete deluded you have to be to like want to be famous. Uh, <laughs> yes. I think he also yeah. like, it's like interesting. They like understand like, Oh, like everybody wants this. Like everybody wants a piece of that fame. Uh, like I was thinking about like the one like interesting detail about when they're at like Jerry's place is that like when they're leaving Rita, like Rita, like I think is like one of the more sympathetic characters, but like even she like tries to steal like one, she like tries to steal something from Jerry's house. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think she tries to get something out of the fact that they were there, and also it also tries to make herself look very good, being like, "I knew nothing about this, Jerry. If there's anything that I could possibly do to make this up to you, like you know, this guy is crazy. He just came <laughs> into my life like yesterday, you know, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like that. Like it's very interesting. Like everybody like wants a piece of this, and I think that it's something that people like maybe weren't ready to deal with back in the eighties, but like now it was like pretty prevalent and that's like just how we deal with like celebrity culture now. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like yeah. a lot of the time now, um, a lot of people are encouraged marketing wise to oh, do yeah. really extreme things because you know, there, there will be consequences, but nine times out of 10 mm. a month later, when everyone forgets about what you did, now you have a mm. fan base and it's, it's ridiculous and I don't like that yeah. part of it, but it is unfortunately a reality of just show yeah, business like, in general, you know? 
Yeah, like stands like used to be like a scary term, but like now that's like something that people like affectionately call themselves for like different <laughs> <Yeah>. celebrities. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's I really don't think uh, Eminem's stand was getting at that point. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. I think Hell it's yeah. I think it's a great movie. Yeah, yeah, me too. All right, well, I think that will wrap it up for the King of Comedy. We're going to be right back, and we are going to be talking about Perfect Blue. All right, uh, we are back and we are talking Perfect Blue, the 1997 Japanese animated psychological thriller film directed by one Satoshi Kon. It's our first time uh, talking about um, him. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to get into this because this obviously, you know, we'll get into sort of like how the basic premise, which, you know, involves kind of like a sort of pop singer turned actress who uh, is... Uh, getting involved with, you know, having sort of a, an obsessed stalker fan uh, that is, you know, uh, sort of, you know, trying to possibly reach them uh, violently. So there there's some connections to um, uh, in, in the basic plotting to King of Comedy. But yeah. what was so interesting is we were just talking about with King of Comedy that, you know, there's something there about this this sort of tonal you know, sort of walk that it does between genuinely funny sequences of like miscommunication then combined with the sort of like agonizing undercurrent running through them of like not really knowing the limits of the, you know, disturbing psychology kind of on display. And the end results right. are, you know, kind of challenging in an understated way, you know, in, in the sense that they are never really explicitly spelling out how you should feel about it. They're just kind of showing you a thing that is taking place in front of you. It's like, of course, as he took like, one you know like uh travis you could say travis bickle but i also think i also thought a lot about um his high mom character you remember that one jamie with brian de palma that he did oh yeah yeah uh, for sure that's the that's the performance i think about the most when i think about uh king Kami a little bit Definitely. just because it has him kind of like cynically invading and destroying the various movements he's getting into whether it's like filmmaking or political or social relationships it's oh, a smile on his um, face <laughs> Exactly. So it's like if you dropped like that character into like an Albert Brooks movie, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's disorienting. Your wires get crossed and I think really rewarding ways. But there's something very interesting about the choice that was made here, which is that Satoshi Kon is, uh, you know, also apparently I, reading up on him. He's someone who really loved disorienting audiences and frequently returned to a very similar idea of a realistic sort of character and settings giving way to kind of a more dreamier pictorial expression um, of their uh, worlds and, you know, sharing with King of Comedy a literal sort of depiction of deranged blurring of, of fiction and, and reality, but where that, where King of Comedy kind of had a little bit of ambiguity to it, this has a much more directly confront confrontational and kind of like assaultive uh, quality um, 
to it. It's, it's very disturbing and traumatic and really cranked up for, I think, maximum psychological subjectivity um, and, and, and impact, whether it's like, you know, some of the gruesomeness of it or whether it's just like the literal function of like time and space just completely collapsing mm-hmm. um, in this woman's mind for long stretches um, of the film. Yeah, but like, Satoshi Kon, uh, he was a Japanese manga artist turned animator and filmmaker. He sadly passed away of pancreatic cancer in 2010 at the age of 46. Oh, damn. Um, so he only, he only left behind, I think four films, but he has a lot of art and he worked on a couple shows and stuff like that. And he, he started out, uh, in graphic design school doing sort of like short manga stories. And eventually you'll, uh, this will really interest you, Jamie, it got him a job as an assistant to Katsuhiro Otomo, uh, which many of you will recognize nice. as the man behind Akira. Yeah, that movie's um, amazing. So obviously we, yes, we have already covered that on the show a couple of years back. We had a really great time talking about it with, with Perry Rowland. And we obviously, we loved a lot of the art and, you know, uh, some of the sort of textured quality of some of the design work. You can tell that you know, uh, this guy definitely uh, worked with uh, Atomo for a while. And also, as a result, this is an even funnier coincidence, Jamie. Uh, he actually ended up writing the screenplay for Atomo's live action film, which we covered on this show, World Department Horror. Oh. Um, so, which is an insane movie if no one's seen it. Uh, it's, it's like this Yakuza slash supernatural horror film that takes place in like an apartment. <laughs> and it's also like a quasi exorcism of like Japanese racist imperialist past. Like it's kind of nuts. Yeah, that it's, that sounds cool. it's very good. Yeah, we we talked about it, I think, in like the first or second year of the show. And mm-hmm. I just we, we probably mentioned on that show when we looked at this guy's credits. But I just thought it was so funny that we, you know, so this guy, you can kind of see a little bit of Akira. You can kind of see a little bit of World Apartment Horror. Yeah. But he uh, it, it, at least in just terms of some of the design that he was choosing and obviously some of the insane intensity of the psychological intensity of world department horror. You can tell that he wrote that film, mm-hmm. um, all eventually led to his first directing gig, which is this film here, perfect blue. And is an adaptation of a novel that he was actually given full creative, um, freedom on yeah, because I, apparently, Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I heard that, um, the original story was actually more of a very straightforward stalker, I guess, slasher yes. kind of horror thing. And then he wanted to, molded into more surreal and uh hmm. you know you know not quite sure whether we're in reality or a dream or something like that yeah no he, exactly he thought the original material was kind of like just a cheap splatter horror story it had a you know a pretty standard plot trajectory of like a hmm. crazy like literally it was just the a crazy fan who we see in the beginning of the film uh stalks this girl and tries to rape and kill her and like and, that and was like the, the that was the story and the stalker <laughs> that they still went with with like design wise does have this just very outright ugly and always oh, terrifying <laughs> yeah yeah and so I, I it feels as if they still got the the, the physicality of that character like what uh, hmm. but then yeah. they you know they started diving into like i said the the kind of like dreamscapes and and whether or not we're in reality or not so it's like the identity angle like all what cohen brought brought to it mm-hmm. a lot of that yeah so okay. he 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 introduced um the sort of uh, especially the film within a film Mm. quality like the idea of the 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 tv show that they were making had nothing to do with the original thing the double bind show that they're shooting which is practically like a parody of like an extreme american like uh murder procedural (laughs) right um 
So the, the whole film within a film and the blurring, the sort of formal blurring of, you know, reality and dream where like half the time you don't know, you know, if you're watching a scene from the show that they're shooting or if you're right. watching something that's happening to her or if you're watching her have a nightmare, like half the time you don't know what you're watching. And, and I, he was really intrigued by that because he was like, look, there's a lot of stories out there that are focused on pervert killers <laughs> and he's like and a lot of them have been done well i think he even cited like you know seven exists silence mm-hmm. the lambs exists by the time i got around to making this film he was like i want to do something um else so instead of making it about the killer mm-hmm. he chose to make the killings more mysterious mm-hmm. and kind of mm-hmm. make it a little bit of you know sort of like uh you know who is actually doing all of this to her and focus on fully fleshing out the this broken psyche of of this victim who's actually being you know experiencing this and actually just getting fully subjectively involved um, so is in the, her uh, head to the point that we don't know which way is up <laughs> yeah um is there like early internet stuff like all stuff uh, something that he introduced also that I don't know. I'd have to go mm. back and actually read it. Um, sure. But I, I, I was kind of going off basic, um, you know, sort of summaries that I could find. Mm, sure, and sure. most people seem to suggest that it, it the the material um, was completely overhauled structurally. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the, uh, <laughs> basically the final third of it is entirely uh, him because the, the way that it would have went would have just been a pop girl gets stalked by a fan and mm-hmm. the fan attacks her. So right. the, the climax of the film would have happened at like the hour point, but there's an additional 20 minutes of the film where, you know, he tries to kind of subvert that. Um, it almost a goes giallo mode. Kind of, yeah. He does go giallo mode. It's the, the twist is ridiculous. Yeah. It reminded me of, um, <laughs> well, what was that one we covered uh, last Spooktober? What was the was one it where... The bird, um, uh, crystal plumage. a bird with the crystal plumage yeah. i think yeah yeah i was straight up thinking of like an argento Me too. uh plot twist <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah no i, I think that the, the thing about this is if anyone com- had troubles with king of comedy because they felt that it wasn't getting swept up enough in the 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 hysterical psychology of the protagonist this is the movie for you. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause that is literally, this is 80 straight minutes of that, like front to back, you know it, right. You know it immediately. And I think it's very expertly, um, you know, sort of like deployed, but like right from the opening where you get sort of like, again, this film within a film quality where we're at first like watching like what looks like a knockoff power Rangers. They're like, <laughs> curse you. I'll get you knocked next time. Power Tron. And you think you're watching um, the show which is cool. <laughs> yeah. You think you're watching the show and then you get a bunch of kids running away from the stage being like, wow, that's nothing like what it was like on TV. It looks so cheap <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right away, bringing up like this difference between you know, like sort of like the actual media production and you know, reality. Right. Um, and then you also get that through a lot of the cutting because the opening sequence entirely is like, you know, like all of these, you know, sort of fans, mm-hmm. uh, waiting around for this pop girl group, you know, selling pamphlets, a little bit of backstage tension, And I love that it's cutting between the, you know, sort of pop idol performance that they are putting on. Mm -hmm. uh, And then also this just this very sort of like mundane uh, after the show thing that she's doing. It's like her riding the subway and her reflection Mm -hmm. on the train, her doing some grocery shopping. (laughs) Yeah. And it's cool just because it's it's like the beginning of that established uh, strange timeline that we're going to go on where we're never quite sure mm-hmm. if we're in the present or the past. Um, and 
or, or yes. in a piece of media that's just representing her life, mm-hmm. like the show that she eventually gets on. So that that I found very cool. I, I, I found myself already thinking, like, are we looking at her in the past right now before she broke out into the pop, uh, the you know, the, the pop world, or are we looking at mm-hmm. her in the future where it's afterwards and she's reflecting on it? And so I just, I think it's a great way of establishing that right away, kind of getting you just in the mindset, thinking about it while you're watching the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think the opening, uh, cross cutting is just really, really sharp and, and also yeah. sets up a little bit of a timeline of like, we're getting a little bit of the show. We're getting a little bit of her going home after the show. We're getting a little bit of kind of like, uh, like her agent and her manager arguing over her career. Like she's not even there in the room with them. Yeah. She, you know, she doesn't say almost anything and they're just making decisions and arguing about those decisions. Yeah, they were like, does she stay in the pop group where she doesn't get that much of a percentage or does she pursue, you know, sort of like more adult acting where, you know, she's actually, you know, she, she has a chance of being a, a, a bigger star, but it's going to be a difficult kind of breakthrough experience. And yeah. it, no one asks for her insight on what she wants to do about it. It's literally, you know, the, industry has is been predetermined for her and she's being pushed to move on from uh one industry um to another and it's even hard Uh, to tell if like she at a certain point is making those decisions like she there are moments where she makes choices like she wants to be Mm -hmm. an actress and all that but it's hard to say just because you get that image of the two uh managers fighting each other and arguing that Mm -hmm. it's like was she led to think that the actress thing would be a good idea and now she's thinking that this is her own choice it's it's just always very difficult to to tell once they've established that this is her relationship with the agents that she that she works with yeah, mm-hmm. like, the, 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 they're, they're talking like she's not there, so that's her relationship with them. And then her relationship with her fans is we get this really creepy, <laughs> ugly-looking motherfucker oh, man. sitting in the audience. There's and that, like, one he, really great, like, shot where, like, it seems like he's, like, uh, it's, like, a POV from, like, his eyes where he's, like, holding her. Yeah, oh, yeah amazing it, image hand. of, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, she, he's, he's holding her, like, an object that, like, belongs to him, which is going to be really important, this idea of, like, you know, that that someone else can look at another person as like they're just an image and feel that by consuming it, like they own it. Yeah. It's and so like it's theirs. And so if she changes that image, it feels as if she's taking away it's something a from him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that, that, that it, it's really cool to see that established in like a single composition. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> the, the, the relationship that, you know, the, the, the fans are about to have with her. And yeah, in this scene, she essentially decides she's going to retire from from pop singing. Um, and, you know, she is going to, you know, pursue this this future in acting. And she hopes all of her fans will kind of come with her and, and, and support her. And, you know, she you know, it's 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 showing off, obviously, this culture of stands and fan letters and, and stalkers and anything. But I, I do like that there is also in the performance, there's this very heightened kind of romantic quality to the, you know, the girls dancing around and singing mm, yeah. versus, you know, her going home to her apartment and like taking moldy cheese out of her fridge. Yeah. You know, like little <laughs> moments like that that they little details like that that they include as well i also find that, it you know are sorry i didn't mean to go ahead I, I was just no, go ahead. uh i find it interesting too that all those fans that we were mentioning are mostly like like males in their late 20s early 30s it seems like <laughs> yeah that's a great detail because <laughs> i don't think there's really one like you know teenage girl that you see that's that's fanning over them most of them are very judgmental uh you know adult males <laughs> yes yes 
Yeah, and I, I, I just like immediately just how, you know, at once the filmmaking is showing you that this experience is kind of predetermined, like it's on rails. She's already kind of being forced into it. Yeah. And at the same time, it also gives you kind of like, you know, this kind of claustrophobic quality to it a little bit as well that, you know, she can't, you know, she's surrounded by all of these people all of the time. Even when she's home, she can't really ignore the world that she's, you know, a part of. She's opening letters where they're like, sing for us forever, Mima. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's, there's a, she gets a letter that says that I like looking into Mima's room and she immediately like looks out her sliding door being like, is someone like straight up like looking at me right now? And you know, then she gets a faxed message of like traitor, traitor, traitor for like leaving the pop girl group and everything like that. And pursuing this drastic image change that, that she is. And like, even just, even when she's home, she can't escape it. Um, and I just love the design because, because it's anime, they can do a lot of like cool exaggerations. So they have these like, you know, zoom ins and characters gasping and, and all of that more so than they would. Um, and I just love the look of that, that facts coming out, uh, coming out and it just has traitor and, and all the font is very like scribbled and just aggressive yeah. and angry looking. And yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. Mm-hmm. No, that I, I think the art style is really incredible. Like all of the mm-hmm. drawings of Tokyo are really amazing. The way that it oh, ranges yeah. from again these more sort of like mundane, sort of like real location looking images, and these more sort of dreamy, exaggerated ones. It's, like it's very evocative and it's very textured. There's great compositions. A lot of the people just like 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 normal people. Like she like only like the pop stars really look like like anime characters. Everything else, everybody else looks like kind of they, mundane they, they or even like glow. ugly. Actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, um, there's great use of like perspective and and color mm-hmm. in it. Obviously, this really sharp, sort of elegantly fractured sort of cutting style we've been talking about, and it it all works sort of in contrast with the really really. Uh, dark and you know troubling material that we we eventually get to. I, I especially love the way that um, this transitions a lot through this sort of like dream that she's experiencing, and and whether it is or not, or whether it's actually happening to her. Like, yeah. there's there's one great one. Um, in, in, in particular of uh, there's a part where they're doing sort of like a fashion show on the show that she's shooting and there's cameras flashing everywhere. Um, and then the, the camera flashing uh, shooting the fashion show becomes the camera flashing of a crime scene photographer, like shooting a corpse. Right. Mm-hmm. And at and first like, you're not sure. It's so like, much, did someone actually get murdered? Because you, yeah, you no, do start to see the, the slasher elements and the murders and stuff. So you're not quite ever sure if we're watching a murder in reality or at the television show. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and also just the the sort of the the visual use of, of cameras and screens and computers yeah. and TVs, like it's really claustrophobic and alienating. Um, you know, I, I, and again, sort of similar to King of Comedy, where it, it's scary in the sense that these devices that are being used to obviously connect people in mm-hmm. ways that are very liberating and very interesting and cool are also you know starting to physically impose themselves on this like real person's. Um, life. It's not just like, you know, the paparazzi coming after her. It's nothing, you know, it's built into the design work. Sometimes she's just walking by an electronic store that has cameras filming her or a giant screen billboard of herself, like looming over her. Like there's really great little image stuff like that, that I think is, is, is really great. And at, at a certain point, you know, she starts to even sort of like visualize, um, certain things or maybe even hallucinate certain things, which definitely gets you into the questions of like identity and Mm. perception and kind of duality that are, that are taking place. There's even a voyeuristic quality. I love all of the stuff about this, like, 
you know, perfect, pristine, floating image of her trying to kill her. Like that yeah. visual image is just <laughs> so Hitchcock that I, I was blown away by it. And the, and then obviously then developing that and not into, you know, sort of like the very nightmarish, gruesome psychodrama kind of style is doing where she's working through this subjective experience in her head, but it it's taking on a, a physically expressive quality. And it adds this uh, fantasy element to it that I like too, because the, her pop version of herself is often seen like floating throughout the city, almost flying like mm-hmm. a superhero or something like that. So that's something mm-hmm. I also uh, really liked. Um, something I found interesting was the way that they used uh, the internet as well. Like with oh, the, yeah. the, uh, the forums or whatever. And at first I liked that. She, yeah, she, she, I, I, she has to ask what it is at first, which I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. What and, is that? And I like it. She first. was like, Mima's Mima, room is a, is, is a, is a, a fan made chat room diary, you know? And she's <laughs> yeah. like, Oh, <laughs> and she's intrigued and kind of excited about it at first. Cause she sees like these, these fans, she's like, that's cool. Yeah. And these kind of interactions, but then she starts to see one in particular that is, <laughs> way too specific and seems to know way too much about the details of her life that really freaks her out. But I like her initial like intrigue and happiness about the interaction that she could have. But then that, that closeness that the the way that people can interact now on a more personal level is kind of also where her, her fear is coming now. So um, that, that was a cool Mm -hmm. and interesting way. And it was just cool to see the internet being like, I don't know when they started to implement that into like, plotting and stuff but to see it in 97 mm-hmm. was kind of cool i just can't remember when that became a big thing well the, yeah. definitely like the idea of sort of like internet stalkers and fan chat rooms and stuff i don't yeah. i don't know the earliest that i've seen that that's for sure yeah, yeah it's like it's really bizarre and like interesting like how precious it is about like we're all on like on twitter and i feel like it really captures what it's like to be on like twitter in a, mm. that capacity <laughs> That's, yeah, now, like, I mean, that's even more, uh, you know, it's 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 right away, right? Like, you, you can get an mm-hmm. instant message just from somebody, just an at, and there you go. They've interacted with you, and you know exactly mm-hmm. who they are. I mean, not all the time, I guess, but sure, um, sure. Th- there, there's a speediness to that that is, is, is strange. And, like, this is just kind of a it's, – it's something that hasn't really formed yet, but seeing it 20 years – ago mm-hmm. was just is just kind of interesting to see how people were well, reacting I, I to look it. forward to the day that Sleezoids gets a P.O. box and someone <laughs> sends us a bomb. That'll be a great day. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> was this was it, by the way this was a, this was around the time that Bjork got mailed a bomb, right? Oh was whoa. that was that around I think was, was. that was around this time, right? I think it definitely was like late nineties, early two thousands, I'm pretty sure. Because I okay. I know the guy made a yeah, bunch of video exactly. tapes and sent it to her and stuff. I've I've seen stuff. Yeah, so this was stuff that was like actually happening and like you know when when she eventually gets on the set and like you know her manager is sent like a like like a letter that you know had like explodes in his hands and they're like the next one will be real and you know like that kind of stuff and when she you know so it's just a you know, the, the way that people can, you know, start imposing themselves on her, even though she has no idea who they are. And even if she's intrigued by it, like, again, you're right. When she first goes on that fan site, she's like, it's kind of cute and fun. She's like, wow, this person really, you know, really knows me, really cares about me <laughs> right. in kind of a way. And then she starts reading her daily routine that we saw in that opening sequence where she was like, you know, like what foot she stepped off with and like what piece of fruit that she grabbed and like, like, like oh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that like starts to freak her out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's clearly written by someone who is 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 stalking her 
Um, and, and is it, you know, is that, he also acting like her as well? And, and also from the perspective of her, which is something that's really, really interesting yeah. because, um, at, at a certain point, obviously she's reading this from the point of view as if she is the one saying it. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain point right. later in the film where actually these lines, which are clearly being written by a stalker fan, mm-hmm. she starts interpreting them as like her own thoughts where mm-hmm. she like reads an article about her going somewhere and she doesn't even remember going to that place. She's like, I guess I went there today because mm-hmm. she's starting to like lose track of reality at that point. She doesn't, you know, her days are starting to blend together yeah. and um, I love in, the- in the editing style. And I love the way that they do some of that blending where she'll be having like a conversation, even maybe with herself trying to reflect and maybe, you know, keep some sanity. And then it'll jump to her being on set and saying those things out loud mm-hmm. in front of people completely out of context. So she just looks insane. Um, and, yeah. and you just feel so much sympathy for her because we've, you know, it's, it's that same thing where you just see the, the, the prior scenes so that you see the context and, and what she's dealing with, whereas everyone else would just kind of look at her like you know, you're, you're losing it. You're just you're like, what are you talking about right now? You said some random sentence out of nowhere when we're trying to shoot a scene. So you really do get inside of her head and, and feel a lot of sympathy, a lot. Well, and too, some of the lines that she's being asked to deliver on set are actually like relating, you know, yeah. uh, relating to her. Like when the one girl, uh, the, the one, uh, older actress is kind of like being her therapist in show, Um, and she's talking about like this continuous stream of memories and we all create images and, you know, uh, illusions of ourselves and all of this. And she's like, yeah, that's about right. That's the experience that I'm having right now. And also the experience of just, you know, being an actress, like in the industry and trying to like make my way. And, and, and some of the ways that she, you know, you know, this has a very cynical view also of, of, um, the industry as oh, well. Yeah. It has a bit of industry critique in it. Same as King comedy does. And the, the stuff that's really, really hard to watch is when they pressure her into doing that rape scene that mm. she does on the show. Yeah. And that's also another moment where you're not quite sure if the choice she's making is truly based on something she wants to do, or if it's like the pressure of the agent, or if it's the pressure of her just wanting to be taken seriously in this new line of work. Yeah, um, she, she she kind of accepts it. I think like in in the moment she agrees to do it. Right. Like she says, "Oh, it's okay. I'll do it." Like they want me to do it. But uh, after the scene takes place, she's very clearly like, "I never wanted to do it. I was just being polite, and this yeah. is just the way that you know, yeah, like like, it's like very some, clearly, mm-hmm. like it's not something that yeah. she actually like had to go through. But it also she still carries all of the trauma from it throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the way that they do that scene in general, like the, the stopping and starting Brutal. of the rape scene mm, yeah. itself. Like, like you do kind of understand how someone could really take that seriously, even though they know that mm. they're acting and on a set and it is controlled and people are, you know, being professionals and all of that. Uh, but it, it's just, well, yeah, she, she, she even, she even says, you know, it's not as if I'm like really getting raped or whatever. Right. Um, exactly. You know, uh, even even though she sees a, a reflection of her past self in the reflection, you know, like uh, refusing the role and being like, why are you doing this? And, you know, you're going to destroy <laughs> my image, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, it's and yeah, like, then she goes. You, I was going to say, like, oh, it's, it's jumping ahead a little bit, but like it is interesting, like the, the, the final scene with like her and her stalker, like it is like framed like mm-hmm. almost exactly the same way. Like he tries to assault her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's even on well, the yeah, same like, set. It, 
right? Mm-hmm. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely on like the stage area where she's right. like, you know, she's like in the club and, you know, in, in, in the sort of like constructed version of it on stage, you know, she's be, she's like a stripper in a club who just starts being sort of like assaulted by the audience. And, um, yeah, the, the a, a lot of the stuff where it just like immediately goes into it basically as if you were watching the real thing. Mm-hmm. In in the film, yeah. it's completely indistinguishable stylistically from the experience that she would be happen, having if, you know, this was really happening to her. But then they'll cut in the middle of the scene and they'll be like, all right, we're moving the cameras, we're moving the lights. And the, I, I do love the detail of the other performer who's attacking her being like, uh, are you OK? Like, I'm sorry. Like, I, you yeah. know, you're, you're screaming your head off. You're like, it's great acting, you know? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I also. This uh, is but a, then they're like, no break yet. Like, take two, and like immediately back into the screaming, and it's a really, really disturbing sequence. Even though you know, you know that it was faked and it was consensual, and you know, it's just it. It's really style. I think it's just the fact that it's stylistically indistinguishable from what the sequence would look and sound like. You know, if it was just being done itself. for real in the same film. Yeah, hundred. Yeah, and, and and I mean, it, it kind of is similar to as Michael was pointing out. It's very similar to the actual sequence that does take place. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And this was this one I just wanted to bring up because it's a it's lesser, but it's um I think it's still a, a a cool little moment where she is first getting on the set and she has to do her first line, and it's just that thought of like her anxiety and perception of of people, and she just looks around and seems to think that every single person is like talking about her and laughing at her. Yeah, and I, I thought that yeah. that was great because he, he really does emphasize like several shots of that to really get inside her head. And just this just the simple anxiety of starting something new and, and being, uh, you know, the uh, the rookie. Mm-hmm. No, it definitely very subjectively gets into, you know, her feelings and her anxieties about everything. And, and when she eventually comes home after the rape sequence, there's that great scene where she's in the tub and she's screaming. Oh um, yeah, which was ripped off by Aronofsky and uh, what was it, Requiem for a oh, Dream? Yeah, he I think like everyone bought the rights for it, right? It. Yeah, he he bought the rights to this film so that he could basically just like point blank steal that, that scene, scene frame <laughs> for frame. Yeah, <laughs> which he then like later kind of uses for like Black Swan also. Yeah, there's a little bit of Black Swan there as well. Yeah. Um, well, definitely. Yeah, he, he very I mean, clearly wanted though, to remake this movie in live action, and he just never did. <laughs> well, and he claims that it, ha- like Black Swan, had nothing to do with this, even though he is a fan of the movie. You, ju- I can't help but see it. Like, I mean, there's too many, oh, yeah. uh, you know, crossing with with the the delusions and the sense of reality. And well, it's the like there was like the shots where like Natalie Portman's like and the, the artistry mirror, and, and the construction like, of it yeah. and everything too. Yeah, yeah. Whether or not she's actually interacting with certain people and stuff, like it's it's all there. So it just feels. Yeah, it feels a little ridiculous, but anyway. Yeah, uh, but yeah, no, I really like this this scene when she comes home and she finds that all of like her fish are just dead, and mm-hmm. like that's just like a really upsetting thing that just you know sort of lets it all out where she's, you know, very upset that she, you know, she didn't actually want it. Like, of course she didn't want to do it. She thought her managers would just say, you know, you don't have to do this, you know? And like, why is the screenwriter even, you know, cynically like incorporating this plot line kind of in the first place for her, Right. um, that it's just kind of expected of her that to break that pop girl reputation, she needs Mm -hmm. to get, you know, sort of like, you know, she needs to get dirty. Um, and then this starts obviously triggering, you know, something psychologically within herself where she's upset with herself at kind of, tar- as she sees it kind of tarnishing her image and maybe making a mistake. But then also her fans 
are thinking the same, which is, you know, you know, how, like, how are you possibly doing this? You know, you've ruined this innocent image of yourself. She literally watches the innocent angel version of herself, like float Mm -hmm. away into like the Tokyo neon night, literally (laughs) pop out of her own TV and like taunt her and shit like that, like that, you know? So it's a combination of like the fans are writing about this and saying this about her. And also, you know, there's a, there's a couple anxieties that some of these are also her own feelings, but the issue is that she can't distinguish the two anymore. Like what is what the fans are thinking? What is what they're writing about her? What is this image of her that they all have versus, you know, who is the, you know, the real her. And that is kind of like the struggle Mm -hmm. that she has as a character is that loss of subjective control over her own self identity, image, everything. Um, And that just gets further and further, um, you know, uh, enacted upon uh, when the violence starts popping up. Uh, In in really great sequences, I thought, like, I love that sequence of (laughs) the screenwriter who is the first to die because he wrote the rape scene and (laughs) he was the one who tarnished her image. Um, And I love that he's originally, like, uh, stalked just by her music in the yeah. parking garage. And it's, it's like this really like romantic pop up. song where she's like, <laughs> she's here for you. She's got white wings. <laughs> He's got it on like a portable CD player, like bass boosted. <laughs> yeah. And that reveal of the kill is, is awesome just to have the, like the opening of the elevator and then the tape mm-hmm. player itself, the kind of the thing that's been scaring him and taunting him and kind of the, uh, the, the hint of who's doing this. Uh, and mm-hmm. then the elevator opening up to just his eyes completely gouged out. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Where he like doesn't deserve to like see her. Yeah. 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 I think it's a very economical, but like scary way of doing, of doing that death, which yeah. is then, uh, leads into kind of like the, the big sort of like nude photo shoot sequence mm. where like the photographers take, you know, sort of taking photos of her and they, they've said that, you know, this guy, you know, this guy at some point, he's going to ask you to like take your top off. And, you know, she ends up taking these, these photos and becomes this, you know, this, uh, you know, um, this, sort of again not the dream girl artificial she becomes sort of like this real girl that nobody wants and the i love the sequence the scene of the uh the crazy stalker fan guy mm. uh buying up like every copy of the magazine oh, like yeah. the porno oh, yeah. magazine or whatever like that she's in being this. like nobody can look at her yeah. and i love the uh, the fucking like layer that he has with all of his computer screens and all of the screens of her plastered everywhere around his mm-hmm. room that start like talking to him and telling him what to do and all like yeah. that stuff's all really sick yeah even and the pop also, star like the uh, the projected pop star image like hugs him and is in the room with mm-hmm. him and acts like a, like yeah. a lover kind of thing. Like, yeah, it's fucking, it is wild. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> they do it's it like in the entire room. Also, like, it's, it gets interesting. It's like, he's both like repulsed by like, that she's like being, doing like these like dirtier things, but like, he's also like into it. And like, he ends up like acting on it at the end. Yeah. 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 A little bit. True. Yeah. So that, that, that stuff's really interesting. Well, yeah. And also his whole place just looks like, uh, <laughs> something I'm terrified that I know what it is because of our <laughs> goddamn dis- discord that we have, but it looks like a fucking goon cave. If you don't know what that is, don't Google that. Don't Google that. Um, but that, that's what his fucking room looks like. It's, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, and, she, and he's like, she would never do this. This is not the real her, you know? Uh, and, 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 you know, he's always being, and he, he, he has it in his mind that he is going to protect her, but he is mm-hmm. again, just protecting this kind of vision mm-hmm. of her that he has. Yeah, He's going to get rid um, of this and, specific vision of her. It's not going to be, you know, the pop star. It's going to yeah. be, I'm just going to kill this new actress girl that, that this mm-hmm. new persona. And, 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 and all the pop star pictures on his wall are like literally like thanking him for helping <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, for helping her maintain this image. That's right. For bringing her back. <laughs> My God. Um, and once again, too, like it, the way that they portray this guy, like they do these like zoom ins on his face and he's sweating and he's got these like the just disgusting teeth. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like it, it just they, they try to make him the grossest possible person <laughs> ever. And they succeed. They do a, a really good job. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing that's really interesting about this, too, is that, again, it's collapsing an experience that her fans are having with an experience that she is she is um, also having. And as her days start to blend together and she doesn't know whether, you know, at any given moment, whether she's having a conversation with her friend or whether a conversation with her manager or whether she's shooting a scene or whether, you know, she's you know, someone's hounding her, uh, elsewhere or like a fan or, you know, she, she doesn't know any of the things that's happening and she is getting to the point where you can even find her doubting herself. And she's like, Mm -hmm. maybe this image of me that is like following me around and taunting me, like maybe she is like more like the real me than like Mm -hmm. even I am. Um, and you know, you you, you feel feel really bad for her. Yeah. Like her only like real relationship to herself is like how people see her. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 and, and that is obviously very upsetting when, as people see her, Mm. it, you know, like that vision is, is changing, you know, as she has that conversation, like she's having like a real conversation with her manager, which then becomes a show conversation, Mm -hmm. which then breaks into all right, take two. She hears while she's like alone in her room, Mm -hmm. like reminding us back to the filmed rape sequence that they were doing earlier. So like, you know, all of these things are blending together. You know, she doesn't even know if an entire day that she experienced or at least thinks she experienced actually happened. She starts questioning the the entire her entire life, really. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she she literally like starts she she cuts her hand on a cup and she looks at her blood and that's like the first thing she's like, my blood is real, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) and that she actually breaks with her hands because she's just like, so I don't know if she's like disassociating in the moment or whatever, but Mm -hmm. she's, she's locked in her own head. And and, and at that point she breaks the glass and it, and it seems like you're not sure, I guess, if it's something that subconsciously happened or if she was consciously trying to be like, is this real? Am I alive? Yeah. Well, I mean like that, that leads into the, uh, you know, where, where she actually has this, she, she falls asleep and has the sequence where she finds herself getting revenge on the photographer, which obviously mm. we know she's been kind of feeling like she had bad feelings about because, you know, the, the, the photographer was, uh, was like, you know, kind of creepy and, and, and aggressive a little bit, but you know, like whether she was going to kill him or not was something she doesn't know, but she like basically her anxieties are once again being expressed in these sort of dream sequences as she's having them. And she, right. but, the the actual sequence itself is fully realized by the film where we get to see Mima dressed up as like a pizza guy mm. and like stab him in the eye with a screwdriver and then stab him through the dick with the screwdriver. And then and, just do it you know, over and over and over again after that. It's just pure yeah, just, anger. Just, 
Yeah, and I love the the you know the the images of sort of like the naked photos of her that she took, then mm-hmm. covered in blood as she's like murdering him and stabbing him over and over again, and she eventually wakes up and finds out that he was actually killed. Yeah, um, and she finds and, the and it, the bloody stuff in her closet, so she's starting to think that these hallucinations are not fake. Yeah, well, because like basically there is someone out there physically bringing her anxieties into, you know, these internal anxieties into the real world. And she's like, is it me? Am I the one going crazy and not knowing what I'm physically doing anymore? Um, And she literally even asks, like, am I alive? Maybe that truck will hit me and this is all a dream. (laughs) (laughs) It's so dark. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, again, she starts seeing even on set when she's looking at a dead body on set, that's clearly fake. She starts seeing the photographer and like faints and into her bed. Um, And eventually over the course of the show in show, she's discovered to be the killer on the show. (laughs) And they say that, you know, she's she's an unhinged uh, dissociative personality disorder. (laughs) Yeah. They even do a a Um, cut to like it's, it's a moment where it's clear that she would go to somebody to talk out her, her thoughts like to a therapist or something like that. And, and they cut to what is actually the show that she's working on, but she's speaking to somebody and, and she's kind of like giving her advice as if she's going through like a session of some kind. Um, and at first you're like, Oh, she's getting help. That's, that's great. And then you just realize, no, she's just on set again. And it's, you know, she's just doing her job and, and, and digging the hole a little deeper. yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of repeating ourselves, but it, it can't be overstated just how how smoothly constructing that blending is yeah. mm-hmm. between all of these different things that she's it's experiencing. Like it, it literally does become completely indistinguishable to the point where like, you know, you you can be convinced for like 20 seconds that you're watching a real scene. I and was. Then it's, it's not. It's in my notes. <laughs> like I'll be like, okay, she's going to a therapist now. Oh, wait, no, she's actually on set. <laughs> like it, it, it yeah. happened while I, was, while I was taking notes. So yeah, they do a great job of that. Yeah. And, and, and literally the therapist, I think, says to her at one point, you know, like there's no way illusions can come to life, you know, mm-hmm. like stop dreaming, even though like she's literally being like haunted by like this ghost of like this previous version of herself. It's literally like chasing her around. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and then they they, uh, they like wrap the show even um, at, at one point. They were like, you know, it's kind of all over. And she calls the actress by her character name. They're like, you know, that's over, man. That's not who I am. I'm not your therapist. I'm just another actress on the set. Like, I don't know what you, you're talking to me about. Um, yeah. And there's a great cut from the fan grabbing her in the hallway when she's alone and the manager like slamming the trunk of the car. And oh, yeah. the, the fan just like assaulting her at sort of like knife point yelling that he's, pr- you know, I'm protecting Mima and she's like, but I am Mima. <laughs> yeah. And, and he also oh, lets slip God. a really interesting detail that he's been receiving emails saying that like, you're the fake imposter, like ruining her life mm-hmm. and everything like that. As he tries to, you know, assault her and, you know, like sexually assault her and also stab her and all these different things. And right. So in a way he's also been kind of, fucked with not that there's any excuse for his behavior but uh no it's just interesting yeah he's going through kind of like uh not as extreme but similar delusions based on somebody that is you know contriving these things Mm. yeah yeah definitely someone set this the literal stage for this altercation to take place that that they are having it on and it's a complete recreation of the one that happens um, that she's shooting, but this time around she gets to hit him in the head, hit him in the skull with the hammer. 
And I do love this sort of like, you know, she's like got this really heavy breathing and there's this quiet image of, of his corpse and everything's kind of, you know, everything's disappeared because it's like something that's happened for real. And then she sees the crowd of the crew cheering for her in, instead of an empty studio. And they're like, yeah, good job, Bima. Like, you fucked him up. <laughs> you know, you want to rap. Great scene. <laughs> yeah. And then doesn't she, like, wake up in her apartment after that again? Mm-hmm. So you have these just, just once again, layers and layers of, like, a dream world or reality where you're just never quite sure, even after something as aggressive as that, attempted rape scene and he and hitting someone in the head and i think even the hammer sticks out of his head and everything like that too you just jumped right back into questioning your own reality um yeah it's great yeah that stuff is all super strong and i think works really well when it does pivot into its big twist where the you know the manager roomie takes her back to what she thinks is her room but one of my favorite um, elements oh, of this right. is that they actually set it up for you to know that that's actually not her room because mm. earlier in the film her fish right. die and she also takes down the poster of her girl group yeah um, and in this new version of her room where she comes back she notices that the fish are alive and that her poster that she took down is on the wall and that she opens up her window and finds out that she's in the wrong part of Tokyo. And it turns out that the deranged fan was actually her her agent or her manager this entire time. Yeah. Um, who was like a former and, pop star, right? Yes. Yeah. I th- I, yeah. I think she was someone who was a pop star and managed and, you know, possibly had the same experience happen mm-hmm. to her or something like that, which is, you know, she was trying to basically manage her career for her. And she was the one definitely the most upset um, with the for her scene. as these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, during the rape scene and during, and she was the one who told her not to do it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. like, you know, she was she she again you have two different versions of people trying to protect her mm. and you had the fan who was trying to protect her and you had her who was trying to protect her and they just completely collapse into one another. It's in like sort interesting of that like Rumi introduces uh, Mima to the website in the first place. Yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah, it, it makes yeah, I mean, especially a lot more when eerie. you find out that she's been emailing the fan as Mima. Yeah, uh, being like, you know, I'm the real Mima, and this one is like ruining, it's tarnishing our reputation. Like, you need to fuck with her, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and she sees it as saving just, her, and it, it, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's it's really sad in that sense too, because you do feel like Rumi, um, at least in the first half when she's present, and and we don't know that she's she like you know, seems the to killer. care for Mima. Yeah, yeah. It's just that you know she just didn't channel it in the. Most she also way. thinks she is Mima. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, that too. She's got a little bit of a complication there too. Absolutely. Well, it's like the Popkin thing where she yeah, wants well, to be Mima. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, and what again? What's also what's so complicated about that though is that like we are already pl- primed to like completely sympathize with how she feels because mm-hmm. it's how Mima feels mm-hmm. internally. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't really express it. But again, she's having the same, you know, uh, questions that, right. you know, Rumi is having, but Rumi doesn't see it that way. And, and so, you know, her, her version of how to solve this is not to talk to her, but to whip out the ice pick Giallo mm-hmm. style. <laughs> um, and you know, she's the one doing the fan site running. She's the one emailing the psycho fan. Um, I love the cross. You know, she's the one, the, like the fantasy and reality, uh, slasher element where you, you you still see when the big chase happens the um, the pop star chasing her and floating as if she's like this this 
superhero kind of thing. But then when you when she passes a window and sees the reflection, it's actually Rumi like sprinting at the <laughs> as fast as she yeah, possibly full, can. Yeah, full ugly, sweaty, bloody <laughs> yeah. hysteria, just like sprinting like crazy. Yeah, yeah I, I love that, that aspect because again, it's again it's it's showing sort of like this projected image of yourself versus like the real thing right right exactly uh, but that's that's even taking place like in the actual you know suspense sequencing and action sequencing of this finale yeah and it makes you feel um, like um like mima actually is still seeing that in a, in a sense like still seeing her past self chase her even though at this point she would see the physical roomy there um yeah that's yeah it's it's great yeah, well, because because when she tears the the wig off of her in the big finale, that actually ruins the illusion for her, and she no longer sees herself as Mima; she sees herself as herself. Mm-hmm. And then, as a result, she falls and like basically, she like impales herself. <laughs> she basically like, yeah, she kills herself or guts herself on like a broken mirror, which is obviously like a a, a great sort of poetic image to the you know all the different sort of reflections and cameras and screens and mm-hmm. things that we've seen throughout to literally have her kill her try to kill herself on a mirror, yeah, and then and then pull back and try to kill herself via truck, which is also something that Mima said earlier, and the mm-hmm. way that she holds her arms out at the truck lights like she's like like their stage spotlights and stuff like mm-hmm. all of those images are just really fantastic yeah yeah um and, and I, you even see like the lights as they're approaching you you start to hear like applause and adoring fans and all of that which i found, thought was just a, a, a cool little thing um mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's, no that, it's that great. stuff's great and and, and that image of Mima looking at herself maniacally smiling and like bleeding everywhere Mm. and then deciding to basically, you know, prevent her past self from being killed. And again, like that, that stuff where she's like literally engaging with a, you know, uh, an an image of herself and say, and being (laughs) hunted and tried to be killed by herself and then saving herself. All of that stuff is like really, really, um, strong and that's the that's the big finale uh for the film and the and also i do appreciate that despite the fact that uh uh, you know, there's a lot of really interesting sort of like ideas at play that this ending is just a huge, ridiculous giallo nonsense <laughs> at the same time. Like, I, I oh, love yeah. that it's both of those things. Like, all of it is there and it's built into the structure and the form of the film thematically. All of this, you know, all of these uh, qualities about, you know, identity and, and perception and, you know, how they relate to the industry of consumerism and voyeurism and everything. And that all is still there in this big finale, especially when you throw in, you know, the Hitchcock or De Palma mm-hmm. psychodrama qualities and subjective qualities and you know yeah. uh, like speaking of Hitchcock they also do that thing where they go back to the the institution after and kind of give like a little oh, yeah. yep. little explanation of, of <laughs> what was happening with Rumi um, and I, I also really like that they give uh, Mima like the uh, um, th- that moment of clarity where she's like I'm yeah. the real thing like I finally yeah, it's like seen actually myself. like a positive ending she like finally like sees herself she like finally yeah. finds that like that's her, her identity she's like she knows who she is now yeah, and it's great. And I think that's a, a great, like, uh, I guess, tie-in with kind of what the King of Comedy does, too, where they mm. go with the the more lighthearted ending that I think is is, is better suited to the characters that we've seen. I, I really didn't want, <laughs> I really did not want a tragic ending for her by the end of this. I was like, she's been through enough, which like is, please. Which is, like, something you would, like, expect that she, like, kills Rumi or, like, she doesn't make it. Yeah. But, like, I think it's, like, almost, like, hopeful that she, like, finally finds out who she is at the end. 
Yeah. Well, definitely. yeah, and 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 she doesn't have like you know super bad feelings towards Rumi. Mm-hmm. She's like, yeah, you know, right. clearly she's kind of has this dissociative issue. Yeah, like but Rumi like, needs you know, help. She's in the right place for that now. Yeah. 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 And then and 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 she feels good because she's like because of her, mm-hmm. I am one hundred percent assured in actually like who I am now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not. You know, like like basically this this experience I was having internally that wouldn't have been her fault at all. It basically got a physical outlet through her. And now Mm. she has, you know, you know, she, she has sort of like reclaimed some semblance of control over her own identity and, and, and image and everything like that. And yeah, so I, I think it's really kind of, uh, you know, uh, surprisingly positive and hopeful and kind of powerful, ending for what is yeah. otherwise you know like, like 75 straight really. minutes of just like anxiety. assault <laughs> yeah, pure <anxiety>. yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah uh but pivoting towards reductive rating round i think here on um perfect blue uh i'm gonna let you guys go first on this one because i'm kind of sitting on the fence on it for you jamie nice i i think for right now i'm gonna give it the old <clears throat> jamie four trademark uh, I, I do think the that classic. this could, <laughs> I do think that this could get the, the five. Um, I just, uh, to be honest, it, it seemed like there was some familiar things in it. Like some of the Giallo stuff, I, I just mm-hmm. thought I have kind of seen before, but the way that they're applying it is very different. I like the way that they go in and out of, um, reality and kind of the, uh, uh, the sets that she's working on. I think the way they do that is spectacular. I, I liked the, it, just to differentiate it from the King of Comedy, like the King of Comedy has a lot of those diluted moments, but a lot of the time you at least know you're in those moments because it's just very obvious the way that Rupert is seeing them. Um, whereas mm-hmm. this one just blends them into a point where you really get lost inside her head um, and y- you yourself really don't know what what's up and down. So. I, I really appreciated that uh, uh, with in regards to the film. So I think it could get there. Uh, I think the animation's mm-hmm. fantastic. Uh, this is my first. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Yeah, this is my first movie from him. So I, I also want to dive into a couple other things. Um, d- does he do mostly thriller and horror stuff? I saw one that I've been interested in that was called, I think, Tokyo Grandfather or something like that. Godfathers. Godfathers. And that one seemed more... Dr- dramatic and and kind of more like heartfelt and stuff. Yeah, so. I've, I've, I've heard that one's more of a drama, but I haven't seen it. Okay, okay, cool. I think but he like yeah, delves into like different genres, but they're all like variations on like fantasy and like delving into like the blending of like reality and fiction. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I, I think yeah, he does I, a great I, I definitely read that. Like, that's his his sort of pet theme. He he really loved. I mean, he started it here, and it sounds like he never really left it. He just really loved this. You know this this psychodrama formal style that he kind of came came up with, where he just blends all yeah. of these things to get into you know again sort of get into these expressive worlds you. of these characters' internal lives. So that stuff's really strong for you, Michael. Uh, I'm gonna give it like the five. I think it's like a really good movie. Uh, I like that it feels like De Palma by way of like Lynch. It reminds me a lot of like Inland Empire a lot. The way it like blends between like the reality of like what her life is like versus like how she's presenting herself on screen. Um, I think it's like really hard Definitely. not to like relate it to like being online, like being on Twitter uh, and like how dissociative <laughs> it feels to like project like a certain version of yourself uh, to like other people mm-hmm. and like how people deal with you. 
Um, I think it's like a really like prescient, like evergreen movie that I think like everybody should probably watch. No, definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm still on the fence, so I think I'm gonna sit with the with the Jamie four as well, which <laughs> is the again, it's the it's the highest four that you can give. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Until maybe one day. But yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna to give it another watch. I think I was just kind of overwhelmed on a first watch. Sure. Uh, because it, it, d- despite the fact that it's 80 minutes, it just, it feels really, you know, sort of formally dense. Oh yeah. Um, and, and there's so <laughs> yeah. much that I feel like I, I, knowing the destination, I would get out more of even the early scenes and have a firmer grasp of kind of like where we were, even though again, the, that feeling of being lost, I think does actually accentuate again, what, what she is experiencing, um, as well but again yeah. really gorgeous design work really gorgeous you know animation and drawing with really great perspective and 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 color really um you know again sharp and sort of elegant uh cutting that get you into this sort of fractured mind that she's having in- incredible you know again sort of uh incorporating the giallo elements and the Hitchcock elements, which together is basically just what the Palma was doing. I, I thought a lot about <laughs> uh, body double a little bit while I was watching Hell this. Yeah. I thought about the um, Palma a lot. Especially, mm. especially as it gets into sort of like the, you know, the, the, the industry elements, like again, this perception that surrounds media and constructed pop identity and everything. But then you throw in, you know, the, the stand culture aspect and the rise of the internet and, and stalking and this never ending modern world of cameras and screens and reflections just surrounding this woman who's already having image issues, uh, just accentuating them even more. Um, where in the minds of like the people who consume your art, you're kind of like owned by them. Mm-hmm. I think that stuff is also, is all really fantastic. And I think you really get that, uh, especially, you know, when when everything starts to explode in the finale and again you get literal images of her being chased by a ghost of her former self that's like (laughs) haunting her and trying to kill her and having to physically actually overcome that and i think also especially as it parallels to the idea of experience of honestly just being an actress Mm -hmm. yeah you know giving yourself to your art and reckoning with the fact that your art kind of has a life of its own. It takes Mm -hmm. on, you know, that it takes on outside of your own body and into the minds of other people. Um, You know, I I think that a lot of people have talked about how, you know, they feel a loss of control over yourself and your identity and your body when that happens. Um, You know, you know, especially here as it's even cynically thrown in that, you know, it's the, there's perverted uh, money men and screenwriters and fans and everyone who, you know, feel, like they have a piece of you or the agent so i feel like it's really interesting trust i mean it's the one person yeah. she thought she could you know actually go to and and uh it, it's the one person and throughout the movie that she actually expresses these feelings of of not trusting herself and the reality around her and Rumi, unfortunately uses yeah that i, I want to go back I want to go back with that in mind because they right. they do layer in a history where she was a former pop star as well. And I, I want to see if I can catch more on that stuff and feel like if there was something to do with the fact that, you know, she's also kind of gone through these experiences before and was trying to prevent them and, yeah. you know, preserve this kind of innocence that she felt she lost herself and that kind of stuff. Because, like, that's all kind of lay, layered in there as well. And I, and I do think it's nice that it does end on an, an eventual reclaiming of... Um, control um yeah for mima despite all of the 
insanely ugly, gruesome psychodrama <laughs> qualities that it it takes on. Because we cannot overstate this is a, a traumatizing film, intentionally designed to be again very different than King of Comedies, more intentionally kind of locked down version. Uh, the, the, this movie uh, goes for the throat. Yeah, it's like oh, yeah. viscerally <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's 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 very disturbing to watch. There's lots of scenes that I think people might struggle with if you struggle with with uh, you know uh, you know this person losing control of their mind and body uh, entirely to a bunch of various forces surrounding her. So yeah, yeah, everyone's uh, using her yeah. as the tool basically. Yeah, and and just how again very much committing to again being inside that broken psyche for the entire time. Yeah, you know, I I think it was a, I think it was a very strong choice um, by him, and and to also to completely reshape the material in that way. Like you have to have yeah. such confidence to do that. To be like, I see things I like in here, but here's the version of it that I think is more viscerally impactful. Yeah, I'm and, so uh, glad he got I'd have to go back and it. read the original material to like see for sure, but I feel like it was the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Well, I think that will wrap it up for Perfect Blue and for this week's episode. Uh, once again, that was The King of Comedy from 1982 and Perfect Blue from 1997. Thanks so much, Michael, for uh, joining us and for bringing yeah. these films with you. Uh, is there anything that you would like to plug while you're here. Cause if so, that's what we usually have where we have you do that. Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter. I'm on a uh, at Sriracha Chow. It's a S R I, uh, S R I R A C H A C H A U. Uh, I'm under Mr. Chow. Uh, you can find me there. I'm usually posting about movies, but also like sometimes do cartoons. Uh, uh, you can find uh, me on there. Perfect. Hell yeah. Uh, for our listeners, we're going to be back in one week's time where we are going to be over on the bonus feed over on the Patreon, uh, where we are going to uh, be going uh, r- regional small town crime <laughs> gone wrong. So, of course, we're yeah. going to be talking about the Coen brothers, Blood Simple, 1984, their debut film. Woo. Um and then we're, but we're going to be pairing it with a a very underseen and very underrated film called Sudden Fury from 1975, which is essentially the uh, Ontario Canadian dad jeans version of a similar sort of story about a guy who is <laughs> trying to uh, perhaps get away with the murder of his wife, um, <laughs> which is something that also happens in in Blood Simple. But of course, lots of things go wrong, and you know there they sort of all the different characters have to logistically figure their way um out of that but i really wanted to talk about blood simple because it's been on my mind a lot since i watched it and uh sudden fury was when i watched a couple uh maybe even like two years ago or so now but i went man that would go well with the coens at some point and awesome. it's also one of the rare movie that we talk about sometimes on the show where like less than like a thousand people have logged it i think oh so it's it's really rare that's sweet that's really really favorites. rare yeah, so we are we're going to be going underrated mode on that one. And then in two weeks time, we're going to be back with a special guest. We're going to be doing a crazy episode that I have no idea what to expect from because I haven't <laughs> seen either film. But we're going to be talking about The Discarnates, the 1988 film by Nobuhiku Obayashi, okay. who we've only talked about once on this show. Uh, that's the filmmaker behind House oh, from 1977. Oh, Lord, this is going to be wild. Yep. 
So we're going to be talking about the Discarnates, and then it is being paired with a film called Ghost Watch from 1992, directed by Leslie Manning. And I have no idea what the pairing is because I don't know. Maybe is, they both have something to do with ghosts. <laughs> I want to look up Ghost Watch for a minute. I might have recently watched that. I did. Ghost. Okay, Ghost Watch is a banger. I'm very excited to to talk about that. It kind of does this like yeah. they think it's like a, a, a TV show um, and just this normal ghostly investigation. And then it kind of takes a turn. So, yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Well, I am very excited to do that with a special guest in two weeks time. Perfect. But yes, that being said, I think that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. <laughs>